You know, we've not had a pre-credit sequence for a few weeks. Have we not? No, we I just we just haven't brung brung the funny. Well, you know, I have a strange feeling that could all change. I think we had one last week, but it was basically just. Are you ready? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> and that was it. Yep. You can't force these things, can you? Not really. We're if not, it ain't happening. We're not doing that right now, are we not? No. No. File A56-7W, classified top secret subject is... Hey kids, comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better. Stronger. And welcome back to Hey Kids Comics. We were here first. Were we? Yes. Before anyone else. Before anyone else. Did we name this land this land? <laughs> Curse your son, <laughs> the inevitable betrayal. <laughs> uh, this week, bits of business. A couple of people have Facebooked me. Have they? Yes. Oh. Um, asking for clarification. Clarification? Clarification. Right. Like Clur. But if her surname was Ification. Who has a surname like Ification? Ichabod Crane. Ichabation. <laughs> yeah. That makes no sense. Yeah. Uh, okay, here's the skinny. Old episodes, as you are all well aware, are going up now on twotruefreaks.libson.com. Go and download them. Uh, just this day, I uploaded our Preacher episode. Which, obviously, as you're listening to this, was two weeks ago. But... Mm. It's a good one. Is it? I, I, don't, I think so. I remember it being a good one. It's about our face. <laughs> Can't go <laughs> wrong with that, can you? Didn't, didn't we decide to call him Root Junior? Just Did we, we do call him but, Butthead? <laughs> <laughs> like Biff Talon. Yeah, <laughs> Just right. call him Butthead. <laughs> anyway, they're going up now. Starting in the autumn, I think we've said around September, October-ish, but we've not confirmed a date yet. New episodes will be going up on the Two True Freaks feed as old episodes go up as well. We need to discuss this with Scott and Chris, obviously, for reasons of space and bandwidth and all other things I pretend would not to not understand. Would it not confusing? Would we have Haked Comics, Haked Classics? I'm always a bit... I always think it's a bit self-aggrandizing to call them your own show's classics. Okay. Haked Comics and Haked Comics are Dave reruns. <laughs> The perpetual reruns. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. We've not worked that out yet. Come the new year, new episodes will be going up exclusively on True True Freeze. So, so basically, that's that's what we're doing. So there will be new episodes going up exclusively on them as of the new year, and the Podomatic feed will go away. Okay. I hope that's cleared everything up. Okay. Um, bits of business this week. Mm-hmm. Today, I finally. Got my hand on. You know these retroactive DC superhero action figures that they're doing? They're eight inches tall. That look like the Omega dolls. Well, Angela bought me Superman and Green Lantern for Christmas last year or the year before. Amazing thighs. Yeah, Superman is amazing thighs. Was that last Christmas or the Christmas before? I can't remember. Don't matter. And in Florida, I picked up Darkseid, Captain Marvel, Shazam, 
as Black he is Adam. now. Black Adam, Lex Luthor, and Sinestro. Mm-hmm. A couple of them were in the remainder bins, weren't they, for ten dollars? Yeah. And a couple were in. Over here, there are very over here, thirty pounds. Yeah. So it was like wow. And for ages, I've been looking for Batman and Two Face, and this week I found. Batman and Two-Face on Amazon.co.uk for a reasonable price, i.e. not the $29.95 that they're asking for them on eBay. You only so see if Batman was Two-Face? Two-Face is already upstairs with oh, the other it? collection. Yeah. So I was made up with this. Um, I now want the Flash, but I can't find the Flash for a reasonable price. I'm very, I'm very, I love them. Do you want a Black Manta and an Aquaman? No, I'm not bothered about Black Manta and Aquaman. I want the Flash. <laughs> you used to call him Aquaman. Aquaman. His real name's Ron Burgundy. <laughs> um, I think I'd have an Aquaman just to have the entire Justice League, but I'm not going to pay lots of money. Well, then you for don't it. have Wonder Woman. We saw Aquaman in America, don't we? Yeah. And he was only twenty dollars, I think. And you said buy him, and I was like, I've got nobody left. And there was a cheater and a Captain Cold. And there was a cheater and a Captain Cold, yeah, but there was no Wonder Woman and Flash, mm-hmm. so I didn't bother. Um, so emails this week, we have quite a few. Our first email is entitled "People Don't Like the Green Lantern Movie." Blasphemy! Blasphemy. It's from the mighty Sean Engel, a.k.a. Joe Anthrax. Hello, Sean. Sean does just one of the guys, a Guy Gardner podcast. Okay. Well, it's a Green Lantern podcast. Does it then turn into a warrior, a Guy Gardner podcast? I would imagine that it will at some point, yeah. Oh, that's that's, that's cool. excellent. Hello, Leyland. Hello, Sean. I apologise for not writing to you in a while. It's okay. We, we don't think that you don't love us or anything. <laughs> But it saddens me. Yeah. I'm very saddened when people don't write it. Guilt trip Anyway, <laughs> things have been busy here stateside, as my summer was not spent lounging by the pool and having grapes fed to me by a bikini wearing Jenna Louise Coleman while Karen Gillan gently fans me with palm fronds, my Doctor Who fantasy turned reality, but packing up all my family's belongings and moving into a new house. Ooh. We don't like that. Do we not? No, moving's awful. I've never moved. No, you've lived here all your life, haven't you? Yeah, moving's no fun at all. Three weeks after moving in, and we're still trying to get everything out of boxes. Heavy sigh. Yes. But one thing that has kept me going this season has been your podcast. Oh, thank you very much, Sean. We do appreciate that. I loved the courage of the new frontier, as well as the current coverage of your favourite new 52 books. I picked up the first issues of Swamp Thing and Animal Man on a recommendation from the guy at my local comic store, but not knowing much of either's history aside from the saga of the Swamp Thing stuff, I didn't carry on collecting the titles. It's good to hear you cover them, though, and I'm glad the two of you are enjoying them. Michael's synopsis are concise, yet give a good idea of what is going on in the books. There you go. Pass on the bat for you. Okay. As for the main part of the latter, you can count me as one of more of the people who liked the Green Lantern movie of last summer. Emphasis on liked. The movie was a classic example of a movie written by committee, and an awful romantic plot shoehorned in in a vain attempt to get female viewers. Plus, having Hal's first major villain be Parallax, the entity of fear, just didn't jive as an antagonist for a rookie hero, especially one who was reluctant until the last 15 minutes of the movie. That being said, there were some great moments and some cool ring construct effects. I particularly liked Hal saving Amanda Waller by catching her in a construct pool of water, then having the water whisk her away. Ryan Reynolds would... Ryan Reynolds was alright as Hal, but unlike actors in superhero roles like Evans as Captain America and Helmsworth as Thor, he didn't seem to be into the character. It seemed like just another role to him, and if you want to sell the character, you need to embrace it. It worked with Christopher Reeve as Superman, it worked with Evans, Downey and Hemsworth, but not so much with Reynolds. Although if they wanted to make the greatest Green Lantern movie ever, they would have needed to do it in 1993 with Dennis Leary as Green Lantern. But not as Hal Jordan, but as Guy Gardner. He would have been the perfect match. They could have even had up-and-coming director Martin Campbell helm the movie. 
But who am I kidding? They would probably get Schumacher director and Sky would be in a skin-tight leather with nipples on his jacket. I guess what I'm saying is get your act together, DC, because Marvel is kicking you up and down the cinematic arena. Anyway, still love the show, Steve, and we'll chat with you later. Sincerely, Sean Engel, a.k.a. Joe Chim Chimini, Chim Chimini, Chim Chim Chiri, Anthrax. <laughs> I don't think the two quite jive. Well, Anthrax and yeah. uh, a bit of Mary Poppins. <laughs> uh, all right, so there's me and there's Luke Giaconetti and, and there's Sean in the We Didn't Hate the Green Lantern movie. So, I, I mean, I'm going to sit around a table twiddling your thumbs. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying it was a cinematic masterpiece. Because <laughs> it wasn't. And I'm not even saying it was one of the, the best superhero movies ever made. Yes. And I'm not even saying it was a halfway decent superhero movie. You just liked it. But I didn't hate it as much as everyone else seems to have. Okay. It was perfectly adequate for the two hours that I watched it, apart from a, a couple of minor problems that I had with it. Yeah. Such as, when he runs off to change, why does he spend five minutes changing when it's a CG thing that he puts on straight away? It's not like he's got to look for a phone booth, is it? Well, his does look pretty awful, though. Right. Our next email, another email about emails. Excellent. So it's all cyclical. If people just email in about the email section of the show, we don't think we can get away with doing any work. Hey guys, this is from Kenneth Laster. Hi Kenneth. I have a comment on some of the points on Moore and Miller. I liked Watchmen. It's a very bleak story, and I'm very interested when people take a genre and a point that I didn't expect coming in. It benefited from not using actual established characters. Miller took the Batman character at the two ends of his life, the beginning and the end. The issue is many writers think that it should be the tone of everything in the middle. I have to defend the killing joke. I agree with the point that you and Scott added, but it did eventually create Oracle, who was one of the best parts of a lot of comics that I have read, and it left for good moments in much later stories. Also, the interpretation of the joke was very interesting to say the least. My favourite Batman is from around the 1970s because they got what I love to see in comics and other media. There are three personalities to Batman. Number one, the Dark Knight, the gruesome wraith that stalks the Gotham streets. This is the Batman when he's interacting with the criminal scum in Gotham. Number two, Bruce Wayne, Batman. This is how Bruce is when he's around the Bat family, Gordon and the League. He's intelligent, antisocial workaholic who is willing to smirk and be a normal bat-garbed person. This is the true identity. Is that not an oxymoron? A normal bat-garbed person. Mm. Do you mean he's a normal guy who puts on a bat suit? Or a... A normal bat person. Yeah. I'm quite confused by that. Because <laughs> <laughs> neither seems particularly normal to me. Number three, Bruce Wayne, billionaire playboy philanthropist. This is the media interpretation of Bruce Wayne. The DC's goatee-less Tony Stark. The animated series, Arkham Games, and the Nolan films get that right to an extent. Quite a few comics get it confused. The current Batman title has been very good with this. A few others just make Batman a brute and just scare people when he needs info with no real detective work. I also mentioned the Nolan films earlier. I strongly dislike the past two films. Batman Begins was pretty good. The Dark Knight was a jumbled adaptation, psycho-thriller, comic movie. The Dark Knight Rises is crap. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> you have a problem with that? No. Are you down with, with that? Okay. I mildly enjoyed a good deal of it, but the ending pissed me off to the extreme. I'm going to be using spoilers, so take precaution. Right, spoiler one is for The Dark Knight Rises, just like last week, except he's mentioned it first, unlike Stephen who mentioned them last, which could confuse a stupid person. And dead. Uh, I assume... Um, I'm going to blank that on the International Treaty of Spoilers. He mentions something that's right at the end of the film. WTF? I 
can live with that poo, but Nolan failed at actually bringing the trilogy to a close. So many people who aren't glued to the internet keep assuming that there's going to be another movie. But if they do, I'll be even more enraged, especially if I use the character at the end of the film. Warner Brothers would be brain-dead stupid not to go this huge universe route, which Marvel proved works phenomenally. If they're going to do a Batman movie to tie it into the Justice League film, general audiences would be really upset, because it's not the continuation of the film Nolan so effectively pissed on the Justice League movie. Everyone considers the Batman films to be the best comic book movies, but they aren't comic movies. They are some director taking a comic character and making him so psychological and complex that it isn't fun to watch. It's freaking depressing. I've ranted, I'm done. Robin Laster, BS by Wonder. <laughs> yeah, how are they going to do a Justice League movie now? Uh, if they do a Justice League movie now, it's just going to seem like they're copying off Marvel. They're in they a no-win situation, really, aren't they? Yeah. If they do a Justice League movie with no build-up, people are going to cut. Because no. the whole reason I think that the Avengers was the success that it was... Because it was an intricate... Is, yeah, people have been and seen films. Iron Man, and they've been seen the Hulk, and they've been seen Thor, and they've been seen Captain America. And then there was the And payoff. even if they've not seen them all, there are people who may have saw Iron Man and may have saw Captain America. I think you would have needed to have seen Captain America and Thor. Yeah, but that's what I'm saying. People have been excited yeah. about the fact that this movie is all of them. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why it contributed. If they'd done, like I said, in 1980 they'd done Superman 2, in 1981 they'd done Batman, in 1983 they did World's Finest. Yeah. I think that would have been the way, to, and then they do a Wonder Woman, and then they do a Flash, and then they do a Justice League. But Matt, Warner Brothers doesn't know what they're doing. No. Warner Brothers doesn't seem to have the first clue what they're doing with their movie franchises. Because they've now got Batman. Batman has ended. Christopher Nolan's not going to carry on. Three or four years they will reboot that franchise. Yeah. So it means they're waiting at least 10 years before they do a Justice League movie. But it's penned for 2015. But well, they want to see how Man of Steel does. Yeah. And then they've got to relaunch Batman. So is Man of Steel then going to meet the new Batman that isn't Christian Bale? How no. are they going to. Uh, what are they doing? Unless the Green Lantern movie. Unless didn't... he meets that character at the end of it. Yeah, possibly. Mm. Sam Jackson comes and recruits them. <laughs> uh, the Green Lantern movie didn't exactly set the world on fire, so it's doubtful they're going to want Ryan Reynolds back. He's Deadpool anyway. And he's Deadpool anyway. And he's also Connor McLeod now, of the Clan McLeod. Is it? In the remake of Highlander. The remake in Highlander? The remake in Highlander. And Total Recall. And Total Recall. They've remaked Total Recall. And The Sweeney. Is there anything they're not remaking? They've not remade Jaws yet. Yet. Mm. We're still waiting for it, though. We're not waiting. (laughs) I'm waiting with baited hook for (laughs) a remake of Jaws. Um, Our next email is from Steve Rogers. Hi, Steve. It's entitled Baseball vs. Football. Hello, Leylands. Going through the new 52 episodes, and I thought I'd try and clear up the issue with Batman's words to Green Lantern in issue 5 of Justice League, where it says they've been just doing batter up and need to stop playing baseball and play football. In baseball, while the offensive object is to drive your team's runners home from around to the bases, a man at bat is a very singular event. So it was a bit like how it was going to be with the league seemingly going off one by one against Darkseid. While in football, one singular, singular offensive player... Are they all offensive? I find what they earn offensive. Well, that's just me. Cannot simply take over the entire offensive play. Even if a quarterback is able to get into the end zone for the touchdown, there still needs to be players blocking the defenders for him to make the run. So football is very much a complete team sport analogy, more so than baseball. Right, that last sentence made sense to me. Quarterbacks? Touchdown? Blocking defenders? Offensive play? Touchdowns where you touch it down. So is that like rugby? Yeah. Right. Remember, football is not football. It's rugby. Yeah. And baseball's rounders. Yes. Right. Anyway, thanks, Steve. We appreciate you trying to clear that up for us. 
<laughs> For a more fun analysis, there is, of course, the late, great George Carlin, which is a YouTube video. Alas, we're not going to play your video like we do play others, because uh, we can't be sure that George Carlin doesn't contain swearing. So we're not going to go for that. But he it was good. I like George Carlin. He kept in Kenneth's email. Yes. Okay. It didn't have much swearing in it. <laughs> it's not like he tore off on a four-letter tirade, is it? Isn't he my age? I think so, yeah. And he's getting away with that. Getting away with murder. He's, I'm not his dad. <laughs> I don't care what he says. He's not my son. Yeah. I don't have to discipline him. <laughs> I don't have to take him out to that side and beat him with a hickory stick like I do with you. It's okay. <laughs> Apparently Scott does that to Scott. It's a fine piece of hickory. <laughs> um, our next email, you're an animal man, is the subject heading. It's from Luke Giaconetta, who I did have the pleasure to speak to this very week. Did you? Yes, on that special Two True Freaks episode that we've just recorded, that I edited we, for three whole days. Are we not allowed to say it's a James Bond episode? <laughs> Why, I oughta! Could you believe that out? No, no, good. Two weeks' time it may have gone up. Oh, yeah. Greetings, greatest British podcasters. Oh, thank you, Luke. No. I don't know if that's true. Are there any of the British podcasters? Yeah, oh, yeah, there's lots of other British podcasters. But we're the greatest. Apparently, we're the greatest British podcasters. Yeah. Is that like the greatest American hero? Yeah. Look at what's happened to me. Was he situated in New I York? I can't believe it myself. No, no, he was in LA. No. Believe it or not, I'm walking on air. No? No. You're not joining in with this one? <laughs> I'm not joining. Okay. The greetings... This greeting is a reference to how I was greeted by a Japanese eBay seller once many years ago. He would start every email with, Greetings, greatest American bidder! In return, I would always greet him with, Greetings, most honourable Japanese seller! This is all of Luke's emails start with an anecdote about where the, the greeting comes yeah, from. Yeah, but that one was pretty cool, because yeah. I went down the greatest American hero road, yeah. and it was so much better! Anyway, Luke's emails continues. Wonderful Japanese people are that happy. Luke's email continues. Just finished up listening to the third instalment of your new 52 coverage with Animal Man. I never read the 90s Animal Man series and I didn't keep up with his more modern appearances such as in 52 either. I only really remember reading about Animal Man in the Ran Thanagar War and Countdown to Adventure stories which featured him as a space hero alongside characters such as Adam Strange, Hawkman and Starfire. He also pops up in a story in the Jeff Johns, James Robinson, Rags Morales run of Hawkman where he is contacted as an expert in animal totem powers. What if J. Michael Straczynski spoke to him when he was writing Spider-Man? Probably. So I really didn't know much about him other than the basics. One scene I, which I always found very amusing with Animal Man happens early on in the Cry for Justice miniseries. Starfire is still living with the Baker family and enjoying their pool in a tiny bikini. Most bikinis would be tiny on Starfire, wouldn't they? Yeah. But his wife has to essentially lock their son up in his room so that he's not listening. Li- so that he is not simply lusting over Starfire constantly. Buddy's suggestion that Starfire has improved was he convinced her to stop swimming in the buff is met with the exact reaction you would expect. <laughs> I bet that went down well with the wife. Mm. So I was very curious to hear about the new series, which from everything critically I've read seems to be very well regarded. From your descriptions, the series has a real Clive Barker feel to me, especially with the heavy use of mangled flesh imagery and the idea of animal and human forms being merged together. That's actually a good point, that. It was quite Clive Barker. Similarly, similarly, that word, the Barker...
archetrope of a fantastical word existing all around us but just out of focus seen both here and in Swamp Thing. The field entities, I have begun referring to them, the red, the green, suggests a much broader scope to the physical laws of our world and how they are governed. Specifically with Animal Man, I am reminded of the novel Sacrament, without that book's strong homosexual themes, in regards to the relationship between humanity and the rest of the animal world, and the ongoing struggle between the concepts of healthy flesh and rotting death. If DC is shooting for a horror edge to, the two, to these two books, you could do a lot worse than emulating Clive Barker, I think. And crossing them over seems a natural fit. Not only are they both tacking, tackling similar subject matter with the field entities, but they are also the two titles which were previously known as well-established and long-running Vertigo books as well. I have to wonder if Vixen, whose powers were also tied to the same sort of field which Animal Man could tap into, will eventually become part of the title. She's much more of an overt superheroine in the classical sense than Buddy is, but it would be interesting to me to see Vixen and Buddy interact in these settings, especially if Vixen was well in control of her powers and had a strong connection to the Red. Alas, I don't think Vixen has shown up in the New 52 yet. Thanks for the excellent show, and I cannot wait to hear your thoughts on The Flash. Thanks, Luke. Oh, you're very welcome, Luke. Um, my only knowledge of Vixen was when she was in the Justice League. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty much all I know about Vixen. She teamed up with Adam Man in the Morrison stuff. Did she? Yes. Maybe um, I know. Oh, yes, she did. Yeah. Yes, that rings a few bells. And in Flashpoint, um, Oliver Queen slept with her, and her daughter attacked him on um, Queen Island and died. Right. Our next email is from Tom Panarisi. Hi, Tom. Hi, Tom. New 52 Part 3. Freebird! It's all he says. I, told you, like, I should have kept all ten minutes of it in there, and you were like, oh. uh, uh, To be fair, the original cut of that episode had all of Freebird, and I said to Michael, "Do we really need all of Freebird? We need all of." Freebird. And he said, "Oh, all right, I'll fade it out." But he did it begrudgingly on my instructions. He could have overrode me because it was his show. I didn't make him edit it, and it was the night before it went up. I merely pointed out. That perhaps we didn't need all the free bird. Well, I cut it out. But it was your show. You could have. You could have said, "No, it is my artistic vision. Damn you! I will not kowtow to your commercial whims." That's what you could have said. I could have. And I would have backed off. So okay. Whoa, dude. If you feel that strongly about it, play all twenty-eight minutes of free bird. It's only ten. It felt longer (laughs) when I was listening to it. To be honest. (laughs) <laughs> doing the Wii doing the boxing on the Wii and going does Freebird ever finish? our next email is from the lovely Dave Walker hi Dave you going to say hi to Dave? hi Dave greetings Leyland's greetings Dave just as I'd write in about a few things that came up in the last episode which was probably like a month ago real time for you guys very likely yeah first up Alan Moore enjoyed parts of Killing Joke but I prefer what came out of it specifically the character of Oracle and the story of Booster Gold trying to change it and save Barbara oh did he? when did that happen? I've not read that one in a Booster Gold story I presume it was a Booster Gold <laughs> was it an old Dan Jurgens Booster Gold story or a newer Booster Gold story or the old Dan, Dan Jurgens right. okay. tell me where that was Watchmen I enjoyed. I like other stories more. I like other stories less. That seems fair enough. Yeah. I told you Dave was reasonable, didn't I? <laughs> I like this. I like this. But, but which I is better? Like <laughs> so one thing is something I've not read much of, but I'm really glad you avoided using the cartoon theme. I remember enjoying the cartoon way back, but the theme is horrible. Grant Morrison next. Sometimes I enjoy his stories, sometimes I don't. That is all I have to say about that. Loving this. Yeah. Sometimes I like it. Sometimes I don't. Dave, you're far too reasonable. It's quite mediocre. Yeah, writing and rant about something, man. That's what the email section's for. 
The, we actually didn't hate the Green Lantern Movie Fan Club Facebook page. We'll have at least two members. I say that because I think Luke has mentioned before that he doesn't use the thing, but I could, of course, be completely wrong. This is a long-winded way of saying that I liked the Green Lantern Movie too. Woo! So Green Lantern what, Movie fans yeah. represent... Yeah, there's four of us now. Three of four. us on Facebook, because yeah. Luke doesn't use Facebook. Are you the 1%? We are the 1%. <laughs> yes! Very good. <laughs> I'm not saying it was perfect or anything, far from it, but it didn't didn't make me want to gouge my eyes out with a rusty spoon. In the way that the short clips I've unfortunately seen from the god-awful Catwoman movie, not The Dark Knight Rises, Mr. Gardner, since I assume you're listening, have. I think think it could have been better, especially if they used the secret origin storyline, not killed the bad guy, since I hate that, and maybe if they'd not used Parallax in order to keep the first main threat Earth-based. With Buddy Baker, I was basically enjoyed reading... With Buddy Baker, I was basically enjoying reading about when he was travelling in space with Starfire and Lobo and Adam Strange and whoever else they may have encountered. I'm also pretty sure Buddy was staring in a movie either before he left or after he returned from space, but it may have been a stunt person as opposed to an actor. I think there were dolphins or something. I did think the first issue was freak and I haven't got around to reading the other issues yet. Was the TV show Andy was trying to remember that had something to do with the strength of animals, some kind brave star... Well, let's have a click on that YouTube link that he sent us. So this was Brave Star. Oh, it was Arabian Nights. Was it Arabian Nights? Yeah. Right, let me see if this looks in any way familiar. This does not look familiar to me. What is this process of? Um, it looks like a Japanese cartoon that has been bumped up to be an American cartoon. They were riding on hover ponies. It does look like hover ponies, yes. There's an irritating advert over the bottom of the screen. This doesn't look familiar to me. I don't remember this. <laughs> no, this, this does not look familiar to me. So I don't think it was that, Dave. That, that looked... Um, Interesting, <laughs> to, to say the least. Yes. Okay, let's go back to his email. Uh, so, or was it Phantom from Defenders of the Earth? No, it wasn't Defenders of the Earth, because Defenders of the Earth had Flash Gordon in it. I liked this when I was little. I watched this. It's Flash Gordon. Sound effects from Battle Sky Galactica. Remember that? Yeah. Flash Gordon. Tarzan. The Phantom. The Phantom. Yeah. Ming the Merciless. Mandrake the Magician. Yeah. So it wasn't this, but this was pretty damn good when I was a kid. Mandrake. Oh, it was Flash Gordon. Who's this dude? I don't remember that guy. Defenders of the Earth. Oh, woman. Got to be a woman in there somewhere. Oh, don't kill the panther, dude. Defenders versus Flash Gordon. I told you Flash Gordon was in it. No, it's not one of them. Although it was good to see the Defenders of the Earth uh, opening credits again. I'm pretty sure it's Arabian Nights. Was it Arabian Nights? Yeah. Um, okay. Not that I remember what exactly was said, but hey, Thor, these might spark some memories. Well, the second one did. I don't recall ever watching Brave Star, but like I say, it may have been shown in your neck of the woods, but it may not have been shown over here. Anyway, looking forward to the new 52 Flash episode that was again probably like a month ago for you guys. No, it only went up today, so it was only 
Yeah. Yeah, so it was two weeks ago. Dave, P.S. Thanks for using one of my favourite Zelda themes, Ocarina of Time's opening theme. In case you've not guessed, I like my game music and I'm headed to Distant Worlds, a Final Fantasy music concert, in November. Since it's slightly off topic of comics, do you all have any favourite game music? Oh, and since I'm on the topic of things that are off topic, if you're looking for a shoehorn for the James Bond thing, they have done a comic of some of the stories, including Doctor No. Don't know if that helps or not. Actually, I'm looking into the Mike Grell James Bond stuff. That looks pretty awesome. What's your favourite game music, Michael? I don't know. Excellent. The Koji Kondo Zelda stuff, all the Metal Gear Solid music. Is that your favourite? Yeah. Okay. Our next email is from Keith. Robert Hedrick. Oh, okay. I thought he was Keith. Yeah, I thought he was Keith. He's just changing his name to confuse me. Just to mess us up. Yeah, just to mess with us. To work in. To mess with our head. It's so totally working. Uh, it's just called Podcast. This is short and to the point. Yeah. I like that. Hello! Which is also short yeah. to the point. <laughs> Hello! The cartoon you mentioned on the last podject, podcast where a character would change into an animal by saying size of a... and the mention of the name of whatever animal he wanted to change into was Arabian Nights. How did you know that? Because, because I... Because you've read this email before we've done the show. That, and when I was editing that episode, I did Google what it was. Oh, did you? Yes. Right, well, just for that, then, we are going to find the opening credits for this on the internet. Yeah, this was the problem I had. I couldn't find it. <laughs> Defenders of the Earth. Arabian Nights. That looks like it. That's no opening credits, though, dude. Oh, well, it looks like I'm not getting any opening credits for Arabian Nights, unfortunately. Oh, yes, that sounds familiar. The storyline of the show was a good prince of an Arab kingdom is taking over from his father, the king, who is retiring. There is a coup, and his father's evil advisers take control of the kingdom and try to kill the prince. The prince escapes, and while escaping, hooks up with different people who wind up forming a team to help him get back his kingdom. Your team of heroes on the show were the prince, who is a great warrior and has a magic sword, and a good-looking female cousin who is a master of disguise and could mimic voices, a fat, short, magician-wizard type character, a traditional-looking circus strongman type who had a pet donkey. The donkey was there because the animal had the power of its own. If someone pulled on the donkey's tail, it would freak out and kick everything in sight. In the cartoon, this was shown as a small spinning tornado of destruction, and of course, the guy could change into animals who you mentioned. Have you ever thought of covering V for Vendetta on your podcast? You mentioned it recently, and I think it would be an interesting topic for your show. As always, thank you for the show, Robert Hedrick. Uh, we have talked about doing V for Vendetta for Halloween. Not for Halloween. For, no, for November the 5th, for Bonfire Nights. We've yep. talked about doing V for Vendetta. So, it all depends on how we would be able to split that up because we couldn't do that amount of work for one show. In half. Especially now that we're both back at work slash school. Yeah. So, we have thought about that, Robert. So stay tuned. That may be November the 5th's episode. Or around November the 5th. Our final email tonight is Aiden Mohan. Hi, Aiden. Hello. Epic stories and epic characters. Dear TARDIS 2. Not actually a TARDIS 2, but you guys are British. Okay. I'm a TARDIS. You're a TARDIS? Hello. You're bigger on the inside, eh? Yep. Okay, fair enough. At the moment, I'm listening to the latest and typically great episode of Hey Kids Comics. I'm halfway through the email discussion, and the epic story discussion is really intriguing me. I've never been a fan of so-called epic stories, Kingdom Come, Arkham Asylum, Killing Joke, and many, many more. I like them on a level, but I don't really love them. I much prefer my monthly fix. I agree 100% with you guys and Scott's opinions on those stories and why we regular readers don't like them. To me, the real epic stories are the ones you have to work for. I point to the Avengers' stern room. You sit down and read that book from beginning to end, and by the time the Vision does that big thing he does, you're enraptured by the characters and every single issue blows your mind that's my kind of comic epic yeah i'm reading stern's avengers and i've just john buscema and tom palmer have just come on board and it is now in the awesome 
Okay. I'm really digging it. I'm loving Hercules in it. He's so arrogant. It's brilliant. A short one from Aiden N. Mohan. Thank you very much. Mohin. I got it wrong last time. Uh, that's it for emails this week. Quick break. And we'll be back with the topic of tonight's show, which I don't believe we've told you what it is yet. Have not? No. Back in a bit. For Guy Gardner Podcast. I've got a fast connection so I don't have to wait. For Guy Gardner Podcasts. There's always some new site. For Guy Gardner Podcasts. I browse all day and night. For Guy Gardner Podcasts. It's like I'm surfing at the speed of light. For Guy Gardner Podcasts. The internet is for Guy Gardner Podcasts. The internet is for And sometimes Kyle Rayner Podcasts. Why you think the net was born? Guy Gardner Podcasts. Just One of the Guys is a weekly internet radio show dedicated to bringing you reviews, commentary, and a heartfelt defense of the characters of Guy Gardner and Kyle Rayner, the two Earth-based Green Lanterns who always seem to get dumped on. Over the next several years, I will be covering the Green Lantern books from cover date June 1990 until cover date November 2004. I'll also be covering the Guy Gardner solo series, as well as any other media that catches my fancy. The show can be found on iTunes by searching for Just One of the Guys podcast, or by going to the website justoneoftheguys.lips.com. So be sure to tune in every Friday for a fun-filled look at the Green Lantern Corps, hosted by me, Sean Ingle. It's just as enjoyable as the search for the subject that this song is actually about. Just one of the guys. Just one of the guys does not officially certify that this podcast is more enjoyable than pornography. And we're back. Yes, we are. And it's good to be here. Is it not? Uh, and so, welcome to the first of Hey Kids Comics Spotlight On! Six-week theme set of episodes, which Michael and I are going to spend three weeks each covering three of our favourite creators with two to three books in that show that we think are the cream of the crop of that creator's work. We didn't have any specific creator talents in mind for this. It could be a writer, an artist, it could be a colorist if you really wanted to. Or a letterer. Or a letterer, yeah, if you want to go with John Workman as a letterer, because he was really good. Uh, there's only really one stipulation. The creator had to have a decent body of work, and it was somebody that we personally had felt had brought the goodness over a period of time. I get to go first because I'm older. Okay. But that was basically it, wasn't it? I got to go first. There was, no, there was no mathematical equation behind it. My first pick is an oft controversial figure in the comics industry, often more for his personal statements, although the work itself has come in for criticism from some quarters. But he's a creator that, for me, pretty much defined my childhood reading comics and was pretty much the first name creator after Stan Lee that I would follow from book to book. Also, I'm not interested in gossip and jibber-jabber, only in the books themselves. John L. Byrne. Byrne was born in West Bromwich, England, in 1950. He moved to Canada when he was eight, and then to the United States. Byrne's star first ascended due to a critically acclaimed run on the Uncanny X-Men with Chris Claremont and Terry Austin, but the book was, at that time, not a commercial success. According to Byrne, the X-Men hovered around the 100,000 sales mark whilst he was on the title, an eminently cancellable position in those days, and only really took off to become the sales juggernaut we know today when Paul Smith was on the book, where the book ballooned to 400,000 thousand sales 400,000 copies a month okay. stick that up your ass, Mark Miller oh my book sold nearly 100,000 I'm cream of the crop <laughs> yeah 400,000 
Chris Claremont was selling. Whilst on X-Men, Byrne also provided art for the Avengers with David Michelini writing, an excellent run on Captain America with writer Roger Stern, and stints on Marvel Team-Up and Iron Fist, again with Claremont. I first discovered Byrne in Marvel Team-Up, specifically the team-up with Captain Britain from issue 65. From there, I slowly started to notice Guy was doing art I liked, from guest shots on Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man, to picking up the UK reprints of the X-Men classic Days of Future Past, and I started looking around for more of his art. Around this time, Byrne had taken over the Fantastic Four for what would become a much-lauded run. The first issue of that I picked up was issue 245, Childhood's End, a wonderfully offbeat story with Sue Richards taking centre stage. Backtracking through the different stores I knew of, I managed to get my grubby little mitts on issues 236, 238 and 243, and from that point on, the FF was a US comic book I tried to find monthly, along with the Teen Titans, starting with issue 246. Tonight's issue, however, is none of those. I considered a number of Burns FF issues for this. And also, if we ever get up to this on Fantastic Cast, I've already done the notes. Okay. I figured that was a good bonus. You can cheat that. Yeah, I can cheat that. Uh, I considered issue 236, 246, 252, 258, 277, 278, and 285, all of which were in with a chance. Tonight, however was one of my favourites as a kid that I looked forward to seeing if it stood up. I know it's my buddy Scott H. Gardner's favourite issue of the book. Fantastic Four 250 if I can just reach past Michael drop the comic on our steamy little lap was called X Factor and dropped on October 19th 1982 but is cover dated January 83 so that's when I will have got it. As an aside issue 251 of this appeared on an episode of the 80. Okay. Murdoch was reading it. And in a recent episode of Once Upon a Time, if you remember, I freeze-framed it. Oh, yeah. I'm sad like that. There was a number of burn issues still on the spinner rack in the town, in the this local store in, um, what's it called? Storybrook, isn't it? Yeah. The show's fictional town. The cover is by the Burn Art Team Supreme, i.e. it was penciled by Burn and inked by Terry Austin, one of Burn's best inkers. The Fantastic Four, Reed Richards et al., stand in a circle as the X-Men, Spider-Man, Captain America and Gladiator, warrior for the Shi'ar Empire, burr down on them. The floor is all cracked around them. It's a good cover, making you wonder why the FF are being attacked by friends, if you recognise any of the other characters, but it is not one of Burn's best. It was a double-sized issue costing a whopping 50p! Look at that price! The whole 50 50p. 50p! The cool corner box, an idea of Steve Ditko's back in the 60s apparently. Not to do the corner boxes. To do the corner boxes, yeah. Okay. Steve Less told me that. Okay. Uh, is an unusual one with Reed looping his arms around the floaty heads of his teammates. The story was brought to you by John Byrne, storyteller, Christy Scheel, colorist, Joe Rosen, letterer, Tom DeFalco, script editor, Jim Salicrup, plot editor and Jim Shooter editor-in-chief. Why this has a different editor for the script and for the plot I've got no idea, other than the FF went through a number of different editors, rotating on an almost monthly basis for a while. The story plot is as follows. We are informed that Stan Lee proudly presents the 250th issue of the Fantastic Four as Spider-Man swings across New York. He finds blue tubing draped all over the skies and is stunned to find that he's Mr. Fantastic. Spider-Man rouses Mr. F, who explains that the FF were attacked by Gladiator of the Shi'ar Empire, believing them to be evil shape-shifting aliens, the Skrulls. Spidey takes Mr. Fantastic to the Baxter Building HQ. On the way, and unbeknownst to Spider-Man and Reed, Gladiator is tackling four of the X-Men, Colossus, Storm, Nightcrawler and Cyclops. The Human Torch witnesses this as he too comes to. 
but he's more concerned about teammate The Thing, who when last seen was crushed under a bus. Johnny finds Ben, but he's out cold, and Johnny sets about helping his teammate and friend with a burst of heat. At the Baxter building, Reed and Spidey find Sue and their son Franklin awake and unharmed. With Sue's help, Reed deduces the only possible answer, and he and Sue go to work. Spider-Man himself makes sure Franklin is safe and decides to check out the Gladiator for himself. In a nearby restaurant, Steve Rogers, a.k.a. Captain America, is dining with his girlfriend, Bernie Rosenthal, when masonry flies through the window in that way that Rock isn't supposed to. Rogers switches to Cap and quickly finds the source of the disturbance, the X-Men, in combat with Gladiator. Spider-Man arrives just as Nightcrawler is about to be squished, but regrets this when Nightcrawler attacks him. Cap saves Spider-Man, but is attacked by Colossus. Johnny, meantime, has succeeded in waking Ben, and the two race into battle. At the Baxter building, Reed and Sue concoct a doohickey that will reroute the mag generator through the flux capacitor and somehow defeat Gladiator. With the Thing and the Human Torch joining the fray, the X-Men are on the ropes. Nightcrawler disappears behind a car and the Angel appears, and with Storm's help and a convenient raddy blaster, they manage to blast a gladiator. The torch arrives and is taken unawares by Angel, but the thing doesn't need much help stopping Colossus and Cyclops. Angel hurls a piece of trashed building substructure at the torch like a spear, but the torch ducks and the spear impales Cyclops. But it isn't Cyclops that dies, rather a scroll. Gladiator, unfortunately, does not witness this chain of events. Reed Richard shows up and Gladiator still thinks he's a scroll. However, no matter how hard he tries, super fast punches, girders, heat vision, he cannot seem to hurt Reed. With a slither of doubt planted in his heart, Sue Storm strikes with an invisible projectile. Reed wasn't Reed, it was Captain America. Using the thought projection helmet Reed whipped up over lunch, he created a mental projection of himself over Captain America, and due to the psionic nature of Gladiator's powers, this caused him to doubt his own abilities, enabling Sue to strike. Meanwhile, the Thing and the Human Torch need little help in ending the Skrull threat once they know they are Skrull, and Reed and Gladiator kiss and make up. This makes Sue very jealous. That didn't happen, it would have been funny if it did. Gladiator leaves with his captives, and Ben wonders, who's going to pay for all the damage? Taxpayers. Oh, taxpayers, yeah. New York taxpayers. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the taxes are sky high in New York. Especially <laughs> when all the superheroes are there. Yeah, they don't live anywhere else in the battle, you know, as part from the Great Lakes Avengers. Yeah. And Alpha Flight. And Alpha Flight. Um, page one. Um, through our little chat about the actual issue, I am going to mention that the colours really let this issue down. Um, I don't mean this as disrespect to Christy Scheel, who at the time had a very limited palette to choose from, but colouring the title different colours just makes it look a bit goofy. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, Byrne would get much better at depicting New York's skyline, especially when he used actual photos of the city, were the background. But here, the background has a really blocky cartoon look to it, but the actual drone of Spider-Man sailing across the cityscape is fantastic. Byrne's Spider-Man is kind of a cross between um, Ditko and Ramitas and looks wonderful whenever he draws him. Note the webbing is a slender line rather than the spaghetti webbing that McFarlane would... Oh, the ones that were like bloody different strands all... Yeah, yeah. that McFarlane popularised in the late 80s, early 90s. Uh, I love that splash patch. All the way through this, I'm going to mention that the colouring kind of lets it down. Seems New York it's seems to yellow have buildings. green buildings with yellow roofs. New Balamora. yeah. I mean, I'm not dissing on Christy Shield because I know that 80s comics were quite limited in the printing and colouring. Page 2, 
every single panel of Spider-Man here is just gorgeous. The typical spidery poses on page two and the vertigo inspiring shot of Spider-Man swinging downwards as we look on from above in panel one of that page is the schnizzle. The idea that Spider-Man would spy the blue tubing then realise that it's Mr. Fantastic is a great reveal. A good in-story reason for the exposition as well as Reed explains to Spider-Man what's happened. Uh, I particularly like the first panel in page three as well. Yeah. Where the camera's above Spider-Man as he swings down. So Upside looking, down. Yeah. Well. It's brilliant. He was really good at drawing Spider-Man burn. Yeah. And it's such a shame that when he actually got his chance to do the Spider-Man title... It was crap. It was crap. And see, you don't know how much of him to blame for that, because the art was still good. Yeah, but the story But was it was the reboot after issue... It rebooted as issue one... And it was... The not-so-reboot. No, it just wasn't very good, unfortunately. I mean, it pains me to say that, but... Yeah. Whatever. I, I like it when characters, major or minor, from other books pop up. Like in early issues of Iron Man, he'd meet the angel from X-Men. And it, it would make it seem like these stories belong in the same world. Yeah. So I do quite like the Shi'ar Empire and Gladiator being in this, as well as Spider-Man and X-Men and Cap. And you know what's better about this? Yes. It doesn't matter that Spider-Man and Captain America are in this, does it? No. Doesn't matter. You don't have to have read Spider-Man or Captain America. If memory serves, this isn't even referenced in Spider-Man at the time. Spider-Man was swinging around New York, he had this adventure, he buggered off. Yeah. Where it fits in in continuity doesn't matter. It just happened. It, it just happened. Well. It's brilliant. There's no need. You. This is essentially part two of a two-part story. Yeah. Yeah, everything you need to know is in this issue. It's Finally gorgeous. I love this comic. Okay. I'm stroking this comment now because it's just one of my favourites. I love this issue. Um, Did you notice page four, panel three, as a lovely little homage to Amazing Fantasy 15? Yes. With Spider-Man swinging off through town with Reed clinging to him. Oh, because everything homages that cover now. Yeah, but I like that it was a little subtle. It's not a big deal. It's not made of it. It's a little homage in the middle of the story that makes no difference. If you go, oh, it's Amazing Fantasy 15, brilliant. And if you don't recognise it, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Uh, page five. Gladiator was a member of the Shi'ar Empire and has come to Earth on the trail of scrolls. Last issue, he believed that they were disguised as the Fantastic Four, a notion he has not yet been disabused of. Again. And that is why the FF are in such disarray in this issue. The fact that this issue does such a good job of standing alone, despite being part two of a two-part story, is a good example of the era of comics in which this was created. Byrne also uses Gladiator as a thinly disguised take on Superman. And many of the ideas he uses here for the character will go, he will go on to extrapolate further when he takes over Superman in 1986. Um, Ben, Ben, Johnny wakes up lying on an awning. Mm. So I don't quite remember what happened to Johnny last issue. It doesn't really matter. He got took out by Gladiator. And fell in an awning. And fell in an awning. What more do you need to know? Um, Ben Dick's books. I don't know if that's a reference to anybody. It may be. It may not be. But also on page six, in homage to uh, Stephen, Flame On! You should have said that in your American accent. Dad, do it, should I? Go on. I've got a call. Don't matter. I can't do American accents. You did it on the trailer. I can't do it now. Oh, you're, just not, you're not a performing monkey, are you? I'm not. You don't do it on demand. I don't do I'm it. not a jukebox man. <laughs> don't expect me. I am an artist. I'm a creative artist. You can film around me. I'm not, well, I'm not acting for you. <laughs> oh, oh, we're true professional. Um, page seven. That last panel, I'm convinced, is a homage to John Romita. It looks very Kirby-ish. Yeah. Square fingers and the lines and... I'm sure 
it's a homage to somebody it looks very familiar it's Johnny radiating heat outwards to warm up the thing and it looks very familiar to me the hands and arms look very curvy yeah I was remembering an issue just after Kirby left when Ramita took over where he does something very similar but you may be right it may be homaging a Kirby it looks familiar in that way that homages do without me actually being able to pinpoint it Uh, page 8 I like that Sue is actively involved here even though her contribution to the actual plot is minimal it's Sue who gives Reed the missing piece to be able to build his framistat and it's Sue who actually takes Gladiator down at the end um You've also got to remember that at this point I was 10 years old, so I was possibly 11 by the time I got older. this. Sue was very sexy, was as drawn by John. Especially okay. when she got longer hair. Fair enough. Because I was never down with the short hair, but that's just me. Even in a long full time. uniform rather than that silly bikini thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. Still a MILF, <laughs> in my opinion. Um, page 9. Another really, really great Spider-Man panel. And the masonry flying through the window and Cap getting Bernie out of the way is very similar to how Spider-Man 2 yeah. would play out. Bernie and Bernie and Bernie. Bernie and Cap are in a, a cafe and the car comes... It's not a car, isn't it? It's a piece of masonry comes flying in because they sat by the window and he pushes her down and they duck underneath the flying masonry in exactly the same way Peter and Mary Jane would do in Spider-Man 2 when he closed yeah. the car in. The car that just disappeared yeah. and miraculously didn't hurt anybody. Miraculous. Miraculous. Windows wouldn't really smash like that. Well, I meant in Spider-Man 2. Yeah. Not just, not just this. Um, there is a reference to this taking place around the time of Captain America 276, uh, with Bernie having recently discovered that Steve Rogers was Captain America. Um, reading this, I'd forgotten that Steve Rogers being Captain America wasn't widely known. Okay. In the current Marvel Universe, he doesn't have a secret identity, does Never he, per se? Everyone knows Steve Rogers is Captain America. For it, when he came back, he wasn't acting under Captain America, he was acting as Steve Rogers. Mm. Wasn't he the director of S.H.I.E.L.D. for a bit? It wasn't S.H.I.E.L.D., it was more of... A rogue Black Ops S.H.I.E.L.D. agency. The head of the world. Yeah. Right, fair enough. Uh, page 10. As with Spider-Man, Byrne drew a magnificent Captain America, despite the yellow background. Yeah. Um, in fact, there are a lot of panels in this book without backgrounds, which must be where the oft-repeated internet mantra that Byrne doesn't draw backgrounds come from. Yes, this is true. But witness the number of times the background is simply the sky. Pages 2, 4 and 9 have panels like this, but the colour is colours the sky yellow or pink. And then look at the background detail in the restaurant Bernie and Steve are in. And the street Johnny runs down in the page prior, and especially in a boot that we're going to cover last today. No, oh, that one, yeah. Don't tell me that the guy doesn't do backgrounds. That was, that was my favourite. Was it? As yeah. Of the lot of them. It, that actually may be my favourite thing. He's done. Full stop. Okay. But we'll get to that. Um, there's so many editor's notes in this issue. Is there? Yeah. Uh, while it may be nice to know when mentioned events happened when were, we, we've now had three different editor's notes for two different books and 11 pages. Have we? Yes. Did not get to the point where you feel oh, like yeah. Marvel are taking every opportunity to shoehorn in all their characters into books that aren't even those and try and get you to read more Marvel books. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. I have no problem with that. Because basically they're just saying, the last time I stood as allies, the last time I stood with the X-Men, I stood as allies. And it's saying, that happens in X-Men 156, 157. You don't have to have read X-Men 156, 157. Let's not forget Marvel are in a business 
to sell comics. Yeah. They want you to go and buy more comics. That's what the footnotes used to do. Captain America 276 was probably on sale at roughly the same time this was. So if you're interested in how she found out how who he is... You go and pick that up. You go and pick that issue up. It's not like everything's a, a crossover and you have to buy every single issue to understand it. If you've not you've not read Captain America 276... No. Did that spoil your enjoyment of this issue? No, but I was a bit... How, how does she know? What's going on? There you go. Which is what they were making me do. They weren't making you. Yeah. To be fair. Um, page 11 and 12 is an extended fight scene. With very little deep in the way of story. Certainly in comparison to some of Byrne's other stories in the FF, such as The Trial of Galactus trial of Reed Richards, the Psycho Man issues especially, and his exploration of Doctor Doom as a character. But you know what? Who cares? Sometimes a knockdown, drag-out fight is what you want for an anniversary issue. And it was quite fun to see Byrne drawing the X-Men again. Why? Was he finished after this? Yeah, he, he, hadn't, he, he was quit the X-Men by this point. He's moved on to Fantastic Four. Um, Byrne peppers his dialogue with enough clues for people to be able to figure out who these are early on in the story. Not least is having the X-Men use powers we know they don't have. Did yeah. you get who the bad guys were? Oh, yeah. Without reading my notes? Yeah. At what point did you twig that these were scrolls? I didn't twig that they were scrolls until the bit where Nightcrawler turns into Angel. And right. I was just like, that is the dead giveaway. Yeah, well, see, at that point, he's not... Yeah. The, all the subtler ones... Happen around the Happen middle. in the middle, yeah. I really liked how he did this. It is one of those things, when you read it, it's obvious... Yeah. When you're reading it for the first time, you're like, oh, right, that's quite clever. I enjoyed it. I thought it was really good how he did it. Page 13. Again, there's a, a wonderful spideriness of Spider-Man's body language. Very Ditko. But the costume is very Ramita. Uh, the bottom panel of page 14, especially the mask, is very Ramita-esque. More specifically than Ditko. Although I love the panel of him falling into the dustbins. Every dustbin there is real, every box, every broken bottle, every piece of detritus. It's brilliant. And I'm sure page 13 is, it's not a homage to the cover of Amazing Spider-Man. Oh God, it was around the 160s when Nightcrawler fought Spider-Man and the Punisher was involved. But it's very similar with Nightcrawler putting his hands around Spider-Man's throat. Page 15, Cap taking out Nightcrawler without even moving. It's just very cool, did you not think? Yeah. It doesn't even move, Nightcrawler runs at him, he just punches him out. Oh, it does make me think, though, it would cause a great deal of pain if it's the hardest metal known to man and he's just throwing it at people. What, is adamantium? It's shield. And, and it's throwing them at his face. It's not adamantium at this point, is it? It's is it not? Vibranium. Wood. Right. Which may not be the hardest metal known to man. For a... Because that's adamantium. I think if like, a really sharp edge <laughs> yeah. metal comes flying at your face. Yes. Yes, that would hurt. He could take people's heads off with that. Well, he tries to take Colossus's head off on the first panel of page 16 with his shield, yeah. which doesn't work because he's Colossus. Kind of. Ish. Um, page 17. <laughs> I hope that was your foot. That was my foot. Okay, fair. Uh, page 17, casual bigotry from the thing. Yeah. As he refers to the X-Men as a bunch of oddballs, subtly reminding us that the X-Men are feared and untrusted by the superhero community as well. I also love Ben just punching the bus out the way. <laughs> Come on, that was cool. Mm. He's standing train uh, stations, lifting drones. Yeah, it's brilliant. All right, then we get an It's Clobbering Time on page 18, and a flame on. Two for one. Yes, a two for. Very good. Um, brief interlude with Alicia Masters. I like her art studio. 
It does look like she's got a sculpture of, of Sue Richards in the nude, though, though. Yeah. Which is interesting, because Alicia's blind, so that well, would mean she'd have to run her hands all over Sue's body. She knows the thing because she was with the thing and would have touched him a fair deal, but yeah. Silver Surfer and Whoever that the other, other guy is. people, though. Yeah, but see, the statue, that's the one I'm referring to, does look like Sue, doesn't it? Yes. With that hairdo. I just like the idea of Alicia running her hands all over <laughs> Sue's naked body. Okay. That just appeals to me. Yeah. I don't know why. <laughs> Ooh, put your hands there, Alicia. Imperious Rex. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, ben will be in his bunk. Um, page 19, some God, awful colouring choices on this page, isn't there? Yeah. I really doubt An Sue would let Reed decorate the Baxter building in red and yellow. And what did you just say? The, the, the orange sky. And Oh, God, yeah. See, some of this I don't think is Burns' fault. I do think the, the colouring's just not helpful mm. in many ways. Um, page 20. I don't really want to hurt anybody. This is Ben Grimm hurling Colossus into a wall. Mm. <laughs> that was brilliant. I don't want to hurt you. Smack! As he punches him in the face. Punch those dirty turkeys in the face. Uh, page 22 is... Ugh. And not because of the art. The art's lovely. But again, Christy Shields seems to have picked the most girish colours she could find. On this one page, you've got a yellow, a purple and a pink sky. <laughs> uh, which is a shame because, again, Burns' depiction of Spider-Man oh, is awesome. And a purple sky. And a purple sky, yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, and I am thinking maybe this would have been better in black and white, to be honest with you. Page 24, 25, it carries on here. The fight between the angel and the torch, to be fair, has no background at all. And neither do the panels of Reed and Sue in the Fantastica. So there may be an element of blame Byrne has to show here. But again, the colour schemes really don't help. Get a stripey sky on the next page. Yeah, the angel gives the torch a good going over, though, doesn't he? Uh, which is really fun yeah they do attempt to give a stripy sky on the next page and then they ruin it by giving it a purple sky and a red sky well, which is a shame over it in coloured in crayons yeah those two panels yeah where the sky is orange and yellow but the yellow is just around read yeah which is a shame because panel two which is a top down shot of the Fantastica flying over New York is awesome they've gone back to using the bathtub Fantastica at this point mm. for some reason and not the one that's four cars connected yeah. You know, that is four pieces connected. No, the one where it's a bit in the middle. Yeah. But there's four separate cars connected. Oh, right, yeah. No, you're thinking of the jet-inspired 1950s Thunderbird type. And what about the one that Fantastica. was in... That's in Islands of Adventure. Oh, yeah, the one that looks like... um The, one the speed car on the wheels. Yeah, canopy. I don't think they ever used that in the comic, have they? I don't know. I don't know. I don't remember that one being in the comic. Page 26. Yes. If Colossus is a skull, why are his clothes ripping? That's a good point, actually. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I had not considered that. The costumes would be part of his scroll disguise, wouldn't they? Unless he was wearing that as a scroll when he turned into it, but he's not, because we see him in the scroll purple uniforms at the end. Excellent point. Moving swiftly on, because <laughs> <laughs> I have no answer to that. Page 26. When Cyclops fires an optic blast at the thing, some of his rocks are dislodged and fall off. Is that this the first time that's happened? I have no idea. Because... Other artists get a lot of mileage out of that. To Mark Mills certainly did. Yeah, until it becomes dull, like Superman with his red eyes. First time it happens, it's cool. Mm. Second time it happens, it's pretty cool. The third time it happens, you start thinking, this has happened before. And by the time they're doing it all the time, 
it gets a bit boring. So it's the same with Except this. Except for a few minor occasions. Yeah, a few minor occasions where it's warranted. Yeah. And it's still cool. Um, page 28. Oh, sorry. I do love panel 4 of page 26, where the thing rips up a section of pavement to dislodge Cyclops. Yeah. It seems a bit excessive, but Ben was always fond of his property damage, wasn't he? He was. Page 28. It's hard to imagine the scene of the scroll being skewered in today's comics not being a bloodbath. Yeah. Whereas there's no blood at all there, is there? Nope. It goes right through him. What colour would scroll blood be? Purple. Is it? Yeah. Or if it was in this book, it might have been yellow, I don't know. Oh, pink. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, page 31. I love that it's Sue that takes down Gladiator, which I thought was a really nice touch. One of the things Byrne did really well in his tenure on this but was develop and enhance Sue's powers and make her arguably the most powerful member of the team but he also developed her personality as well again arguably he actually gave her a personality instead of the, the Kirby ones which is oh he terrifies me I'm going to fall unconscious read I'm scared pages. page 33 is lovely because once the thing knows that it's a scroll he just lets loose yeah. and he punches Colossus into the air and when he comes back down he just punches him like he's a baseball <laughs> which I thought was hysterical fastball special right there fastball special right there albeit using Colossus as the fastball page 34 the torch proves all evidence to the contrary that he does have some brains yeah. when he flies super fast at a building and then makes a rough 90 degree turn and the scrolls just hit the building because mm. they can't turn that quick because they're using flight packs. Is he still under his alleged secret identity? No, that, that's that's long gone. So he has come to senses. By the way, size, yeah. Uh, page 35. Lip services paired to how difficult a full scroll invasion would be to stop. This would apparently be followed up in Secret Invasion, which I've never read. Yes, you have. You keep saying that. I don't remember anything about British, it. We, we were following Mighty World of Marvel right. after um, World War Hulk, mm-hmm. which I forgot to tell you is in hardback now. World War Hulk with both the main story and the tie-in story is it because I liked World War Hulk it's all a one lot. big I saw it in the South Park really? Stones one big yeah so anyway anyway um, yeah we were following that and it was the tie-ins the X-Men tie-ins and, right. and such and so you said you have that I'll read it whilst I'm reading this and you did did I like it? We mustn't have you. Because <laughs> I didn't remember anything it. about it. That doesn't mean I didn't like it. It just means it wasn't memorable. Yes. I, mean, I thought it was awful. I enjoyed it All because right. of the setup. Fair enough. Uh, page 37. Who does pay for the damage that superheroes make? Taxpayers. Damage control, dude. Okay. You remember them? No. All right, fair enough. The last panel's awesome, isn't it? Yeah. Look at that destruction. And the FF just stood in the middle of it going... Hmm. Um, Spider was just like, ah, yeah, I'm just gonna go get that. Yeah, Spider was like, this is not about it. We know he's not married yet. Oh, is he not? No, he's still single. Never was. Never was. Yeah. Apparently, uh, I thought this was an utterly fantastic and engrossing issue, made all the more enjoyable by how fast-paced and roller coaster it is. As I've said, there's no deeper meaning or subtext to this issue. There's no commentary on the human condition. It's just a balls-out, fun, extended fight scene with some great guest stars and a neat villain. Byrne would do better issues than this, both as writer and artist, but as a joyful example of just how fun comics can be, you can't do much better than this if you see it in the back issue bins. I don't think it's expensive, this one, is it? Probably not, though. Seems to be moderately cheap by today's standards. 
Um, there's a fantastic four pin-up page by Byrne, which is pretty good and includes Ben eating a huge sandwich. A cool advert for the Spider-Man Parker Brothers Atari video game with Ramita Art, by the look of it. I the Spider-Man advert was hilarious. Yeah. Just because it was very difficult to read. And the graphics as well. The sentences yeah. were split in two, so it was quite hard to read. And it's in the centre pages. See, though, it's like a... Yeah, the lettering's quite crap. Watch me climb. My web, goblin. What's a silk stalker? I don't know. Silk slinger. He's not, he doesn't sling silk. If I don't get you, webhead. Next page. My gang of nasties will. <laughs> the artwork's nice. I love the graphics. I love that the graphics are built as being the best ever. Cutting edge. Cutting edge. At least he goes thwip. Groundbreaking, that's which, which is always good. Um, the letters are all about the first issue I bought, issue 245. And the bullpen bulletins page talks about the general stuff an editor-in-chief has to do. What did you think of that one, Michael? I enjoyed it. Did you? Yes, I did. Excellent. Did On what it? level? Um, the level that it was enjoyable to read but wasn't my favourite issue of this episode. That's fair enough. It's not my favourite of the episode. No. But it's a damn good issue. It is. In my opinion. It's a fun read. It is. It was and jolly. You don't have to pay attention. That's what I'm saying. It's an anniversary issue that is just a balls out fight scene. Yeah. There's no there's no deep meaningful. He's not trying to solve hunger or world peace or cure cancer or anything. It's just a really fun issue. So, second choice then. Let me reach over and not disturb my Batman figure. My second choice for a burn classic comes from his run on Alpha Flight. Team Canada. Team Canada, Team Canada, they have a man who was the flag like Captain America. Team Canada, Team Canada, he was a flag of his country like Captain Britain. Team Canada, <laughs> You're Team that Canada, I'm running out of heroes that were flags for their countries as well. <laughs> can you think of any others that I can chew on in? Union Jack. He was a flag like <laughs> Union Jack, Team Canada. Who else? I don't know. Is there not a Russian superhero who was the Russian flag? There must be. <laughs> there has to be a Russian superhero who was the hammer and sickle. Rising Sun. No, he's Japanese, yeah, dude. He still was Japanese flag, doesn't he? I think he does, yeah. yeah. I felt he was called Sunfire. Oh, in the Marvel Universe, yeah. Yeah, you think of the DC? Yeah. He's like Sunfire, he was his flag on his costume team, Canada. Oh, Sunfire. <laughs> team Toronto. I, I think we've beaten that one into the ground. Yeah. I'm sorry. I do apologise. <laughs> I'm not even drunk. Um, it's quite distressing to learn that the man himself does not rate his work on Alpha Flight very highly. Okay. He thinks this is some of the worst stuff he's ever done. Not fond of this at all. All right. Um, Byrne came up with the look and design of the main characters of Alpha Flight solely as opponents of the X-Men. And so they had abilities and power sets that were enabled to fulfil that task. They were very popular, though. And Marvel wanted an Alpha Flight book. Byrne apparently resisted for some time before then editor-in-chief Jim Shooter said they were going ahead with or without it. So Byrne relented initially for the challenge of giving these ciphers personalities. Byrne wrote Alpha Flight for 28 issues. I can honestly say, without exception, I have never looked at another Alpha Flight book since he left. Given all the things I've heard about the team since, I often think I was right to do this. You've read the recent miniseries. No, I'm not. I've got it. I've not read it. Well, you... You have said you're looking forward to reading them. I am, because it's this team. Despite the fact they've all been killed off yeah. at various points, apparently they're all back now. Yeah. So I am looking forward they, to reading them. They all died, except for Sasquatch and Benish. Did the Bendis? 
Yep. I am shocked yeah. to learn that. It was, an, it was no big deal or anything. It's just in one panel, all of her dead. Ben is being gritty. <laughs> no doubt. Um, I first met the Alphas in the pages of the weekly Secret Wars comic. Remember that one we covered Secret Wars? Yes. Uh, fed up with them chopping and changing the stories to fit the page count, I started tracking down the monthly issues. It wasn't that hard to find issues of Alpha for cover price at that point, and I quickly built up a full collection after that. I don't think I picked these up off the stands, though, although it wasn't overly expensive after I found Odyssey 7 in Manchester, which was the first comic shop I ever went to. I still think I got most of these for cover price. Maybe a little bit more. Uh, the story took a long time to build up, going for the slow burn. Interestingly, Byrne chose to concentrate on each member of the team rather than giving them a lot of team missions. After the introductory adventure, we got solo adventures and origins for the team before leading into the first big storyline, which culminated in my next pick, Alpha Flight 12. This issue came out on April the 17th, 1984, in North America, and probably around cover date of July 84 over here. Again, it was 50 pennies. Two years, the price hasn't gone up. Really? That's awesome, that, isn't it? Yeah. Each member of Alpha is on the cover, a cover that has been much homaged over the years, with a target over their faces, the cover copy running across the bottom, stating that, and one shall surely die. Only Burn is credited on the cover. It's an extremely striking cover. The idea of a legitimate death was still quite a novelty, even Phoenix hadn't come back yet. So even if the cover was lying, it was still an enticing prospect. Not overly fond of the pink. It's all pink. Yes. And a little bit of white. A little bit of white. I do wonder why they went for pink. I often wonder if the colourists were colourblind. <laughs> Bird was colourblind. Yeah. Is colourblind, yeah. So that. Well, he's only pencil. Yeah, he's not coloured it, so we can't blame him for it. Only if he sees these pencils as red? No, it's only certain colours that he doesn't register, so it's not everything. It's just certain colours. And One Shall Surely Die was created and chronicled by John Byrne, coloured by Andy Yanchus, lettered by Mike Higgins, edited by Denny O'Neill, and chiefed by Jim Shooter. Heather Hudson, wife of James MacDonald Hudson, a.k.a. Guardian, the leader of Alpha Flight, waits for her husband with Delphine Courtney in New York. Courtney tells Heather to watch the TV where she receives a pre-recorded message from Jerry Jackson. I was waiting for that. I, was, I told you, Mum, before I gave you this, I said to her, there's a character in that issue 2512 of our flight called Jerry Jackson. That is I am waiting for Michael to piss himself. I did. And that was my <laughs> Awesome. <laughs> you will have to explain who the lovely listeners who Jerry Jackson is when I finish the synopsis. I will. Jackson was Mac Hudson's former boss at Amcan Petrochemical, who was fired when Mac stole the exploratory supersuit and psycho-cybernetic helmet that controlled the suit after Mac discovered the suit was being sponsored by the military. No proof was ever found that Mac stole the suit, so Jackson took the blame. In less than a year, he lost his wife and family, and Amcan made him unemployable. Jackson decided to end it all by hanging himself and was found by his landlady before he died. The failed hanging caused brain damage, and he would never walk again. Shortly thereafter, Guardian made his debut. Canada's first hero since World War II and their very own Captain America to boot. Jackson immediately deduced that the suit Guardian wore was similar in design to the suit Mac had designed for Amcan, and he tracked Mac down. With what he had learned, Jackson went to Amcan's rivals at Rocks and Oil, and they quickly funded the creation of Omega Flight and Jackson's ultimate goal, the death of James MacDonald Hudson and the destruction of Alpha Flight. Heather realises that the job offer in New York was an elaborate ruse and turns to leave. 
Courtney grabs her and prevents her from leaving. In the melee, Heather turns Delphine's face off. In Ontario, Canada, Snowbird and Shaman await the arrival of the other members of Alpha Flight, Walter Langowski, Sasquatch, the diminutive Puck, and the French brother-sister mutant team of Aurora and Northstar, and Shaman whisks them away to Guardian, who is embroiled in a major fracas with Omega Flight. Alpha Flight joined Fighty McFightenstein. Alpha spent more time fighting her own inner demons than Omega Flight, but ultimately emerged triumphant. Heather, meantime, has learned that Courtney is a robot programmed to assist Jackson, and Heather follows her into an obvious trap. The battle goes well for Alpha, however. The Omega Flight agent called Box swoops in, grabs Guardian, and disappears into a small enclave leading to another room. Box beats the tar out of Guardian, pressing the attack so Guardian is able to fight back and revealing himself to be Jackson. On the ropes, Guardian pulls out the power leads from his own suit's power supply and plugs the cables into the weak spot on Box's suit, causing a malfunction in the power of both suits. The resulting feedback causes brain death for Jackson, but Guardian realises that his own suit is now a ticking time bomb due to the feedback. Quickly, calmly, he starts the disconnection procedure to power down the suit safely. The seconds tick down and Guardian makes progress. The suit is still overheating, but the procedure goes well. Just a few more components. Suddenly, Heather bursts into the room, distracting Guardian from the procedure. The power pack in the suit blows, engulfing Guardian, and before his startled wife's eyes, James MacDonald Hudson burns to death. Wow! What an ending! Yep, I like that ending. Is that? It's quite a funny ending. Funny? Well, in the sense that... Imagine you being Heather walking into that room, not knowing what's going on, and you're just seeing your husband set on fire, and you're just like, well, what's going on? What happened? Yeah. yeah, she doesn't know she's to blame, does she? No. She won't know that's her fault. Which I suppose is better for her. Yeah. In many ways. Um, starting at the beginning, then. Yeah. Page one is an excellent splash page, despite the fact it's two people doing nothing. Um, Heather and Courtney stood in a room. The room is very Art Deco, starkly monochromatic, with the only colour provided by Heather Hudson and Delphine Courtney. It's a wonderful example of Byrne emphasising the normal and the mundane against the superheroics. Delphine has a very 80s hairdo. Yeah. She looks like she should be in the Human League. Okay. Doesn't she? Don't. Don't you want me? Not know that, sound? I don't know that. You don't know any Human League? I don't know any Human League. <sighs> Is that, don't that you want me, baby? Oh, from, from the Doritos Don't advert. you want me... From the Doritos <laughs> advert. Oh, people are so uncultured nowadays. Um, some backstory. Jerry Jackson. <laughs> Go on, you do it. Jerry Jackson. <laughs> it's spelled differently, I presume. Jerry Jackson's full story, albeit from his point of view, is all present and correct. James MacDonald Hudson's full origin was given in earlier issues of Alpha Flight. And all the backstory of Wolverine's relationship with Alpha was touched upon in the X-Men. Alpha Flight is a government-sanctioned Canadian super team, similar to the Avengers, although the Avengers seem to act with a lot more autonomy than Alpha. In addition, other members are trained through Gamma, Beta and Omega Flight and promoted through the ranks. Most of Jackson's crew are failed team members or people with mental instability that would never make the grade and become part of Alpha. Alpha Flight has had precious few mittens to get mittens. The pressure through gloves. <laughs> you need a lot of gloves on in Canada, it's cold. Yeah. Pressure oh, through mittens really together. I meant missions. During the course of the series thus far, with the previous 11 devoted to character building origins and subplots. Maybe Canada just doesn't have as much crime or as many alien invasions as North America. Probably not. 
quite, quite a sleepy country. Yeah. Okay. You see, see, they don't have alien invasions. They have ninja fights and Scott Pilgrims. <laughs> Excellent. Go on. Yeah. Go on. You've got to do that now. D- what? Zomfgur. Zomfgur. What the hell does that mean? Well, the OMFG means. Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I get that bit. What's the Z? I have no idea. Why is it though? Then I don't know because. Is it like Zoinks? <laughs> yes. <laughs> like in Scooby Doo. <laughs> Go on. Good show. Should I explain Jerry Jackson as? Go on. Okay. Explain why that's well funny. Well funny. <laughs> that is like right funny. Well, Jerry Jackson is a character by the British animator David Firth, who does animations for TV shows and Channel Four, and he's done stuff for Charlie Brooker. Oh yeah. Yeah. Yes, he has some screen wipe. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the Jerry Jackson character, the the whole series is taking the mick out of animations, and it's all badly animated and badly voice acted. Mm. And it's um, the the they all talk like like it's it's rate funny. And, <laughs> What's the website called? The fatpie dot com. Right. I can just go on jerryjackson.com. But is it Jackson as in Michael Jackson? Yes. As it was the character in this is J A X O N. Yeah. Yeah, and has really strange music underneath as well, like Aphex Twin and stuff. Yeah, like that, actually. Yeah, screen wipe. Yeah. Alright, fair enough. Uh, page 435. <laughs> I thought his name would amuse you. Yeah. And I didn't notice that when I picked it. Yeah. That was just... I'd forgotten the guy was called Jerry Jackson. Jerry Jackson. Jerry Jackson's life... <laughs> no, I can't say it. Spirals downwards very quickly, reminding us that we're all only one paycheck away from eviction. His suicide being discovered because his landlady was coming up to evict him. Sin of it. It's wonderfully, injury. It's wonderfully ironic. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, very good indeed. Um, Gary Axon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it says that um, Captain Calendar was the first Canadian hero since World War Two. So he's not Captain Canada. He is in my head. All right. So was Wolverine around in World War Two, or has that been changed? That's a retcon. That didn't exist at this point. Was it later or before? It's much later than this. That Wolverine was in World War Two. Really? Yeah. So much the, so, later than 1984. So they're going back to earlier events after this. Yeah. Okay. Um, but Wolverine won't have operated as a superhero in World War Two, will he? So would Weapon X not count as another Alpha flight? Weapon X is part of Alpha Flight, if I'm if memory serves. Weapon X was either retconned or this was created to be part of Alpha because Wolverine ends up living with James McDonald Hudson and Heather for a while. Okay. As like an adopted son, even though he's older than them. Okay. Which was a bit confusing. Like Dick Grayson adopting Bruce Wayne. Yeah, pretty much. Um page six. When he's in Rocks and Oil. Rocks and Oil is interesting. Rocks and Oil was all over Marvel Comics of this time. It was a big thing in Iron Man. Yeah, it was a big thing in Iron Man. It was a big thing in Stern's run on the X-Men. There was a big Will-O-The-Wisp storyline. It tied in with the Brand Corporation, which tied in with um, an investigation that Ned Leeds was working on. The Rocks and Oil stuff... So was it like a really early dark reign? No, well, it was in books that had no interest in it. Rocks and Oil was just there. And then, in, particularly in Iron Man, but kind of in Spider-Man, they discovered, Peter Parker discovered through Ben, Urich and Ned Leeds, that Rocks and Oil were dirty. Okay. And Iron Man was discovering much the same thing, wasn't he? Because he was fighting them. Yeah. So, 
it's a nice little continuity touch that this is rocks and oil, but it doesn't matter to Alpha Flight that it's rocks and oil. Yeah. It's just if you're reading Iron Man, you're going, oh, rocks and oil, that explains a great deal. Yeah. So I quite like to, I've got this, the world building stuff. Um, August D'Angelo, or Angelo, is the head of rocks and oil. We don't see his face. He's kept in shadow, implying that he was going to be a big player, but he never really went anywhere. On his desk, there is a picture of a girl that looks suspiciously like Julie D'Angelo, or D'Angelo, or however you pronounce that, uh, an on-again, off-again love interest for Johnny Storm in the Fantastic Four at this time. Uh, I have no idea if this was ever followed up by other creative teams, as Julie just kind of disappeared from the FF book, even when Byrne was on it. He went in the direction of Johnny and Alicia hooking up. Okay. Ben was on Secret War World. Okay. They ended up getting married. But but she was a scroll. Okay. So so <laughs> so Alicia and Ben were going out, but as soon as Ben buggers off, Johnny Johnny moves in. <laughs> Johnny moves in on his mate's girl. Like a vulture. Yeah. It's actually not as sordid as that. It's actually quite well handled. Right, okay. May have been Burns' only real misstep on the book. Yeah. To be honest with you, but. Yeah, anyway, it, it doesn't matter anymore, does it? Not really. Uh, page seven. Oh, page five, sorry. Um, I don't think we need to point out that Jerry Jackson's insane, do we? No. Because the bottom panel on page six, he, I mean... He looks right insane. He looks re insane, does Jerry Jackson, doesn't he? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> page nine. Burn Wood, over his run in FF, used actual imagery of New York in his art. He does the same here for Canada. He looks drawn over, though. Yes, he's done some drawing. It's not just a photo. Because I don't think photos would print well at this era, would they? No. So he, he has done some doctoring it in some way. They won't have had scanners then, will they? A light box. Possibly. Yeah, he's possibly light boxed it. Um, I think that works exceptionally well. Again, we've mentioned before other artists would follow this. McFarlane does it. Yeah. In Spider-Man, you've mentioned that um, Cassidy does it. Yeah. In various other things. Uh, page 10. Jean-Marie Bobier, Bobier, oh, bloody funny names, <laughs> a.k.a. Aurora, is a split personality. Curfree and a bit of a sexual predator in Aurora persona. She's French. <laughs> oh, reinforcing that stereotype. Uh, a mousy, dowdy, somewhat prudish teacher in her other identity. The problem has been that she can sometimes switch without warning. She's in a relationship with Walter Langowski and on the outs with her brother, Jean-Paul Bobier, a.k.a. North Star. Um, page 11 has an editor's note for Marvel 2 and 1, but there's no um, number next no, to it. No, you're right, there isn't. There's an asterisk saying they had um, business with Ravager last year, and it says, in Marvel 2 and 1 issue, and then there's not an issue number there. No. You know what that is? What? They've referenced that it was in Marvel 2 in 1, and the editor should have gone and looked up what issue of Marvel 2 in 1 it was. But forgot. But Denny O'Neill was asleep at the wheel, obviously, mm. and uh, didn't fill that in. You could get a pen and fill it in yourself. Yeah. Because no one would ever know. Do it yourself, comics. Yeah. <laughs> you could colour your comics in like I used to do. <laughs> I'll draw on them. Yeah, that saddens me. Very saddens me. Page 12. Puck, also known as Judd was, I think, one of those fascinating members of the team, a casualty of dwarfism. Puck was a scrapper, gymnast and former wrestler who was incredibly intelligent and very well read, as evinced by the amount of books on his bookshelf. This juxtaposition of character made him a fan favourite. Again, it looks like the top two panels are photo-referenced, doesn't it? 
Very well done, though. So this being before the internet, if you said, hey, I've got a book set in Canada, do you, do you get a free trip around Canada to take photos? Well, Byrne is, was Canadian. Is Canadian. Well, he was British, but then he was Canadian, now he's an American citizen. Yeah. But he lived in Canada for quite a lot of his life. But he gets, he's got lots of books. He will have, he'll have had books on Canada. Yeah. And he just references them from the books. He said that. He has books on cars. Fair and he references them from, when he's drawing a car, he references it from the book. They may have sent him to Canada to take some photos. Yeah. I don't know. That would have been quite cool. Yeah. I'm, do, I'm doing a book set in um, Hawaii this week. So. Yeah. <laughs> uh, page th- I do know the X-Men. Chris Claremont for issue 200 of the X-Men did get sent to Paris. Okay. To be able to write his story properly. And John Jr. went with him to be able to draw it properly. Okay. So they actually did Wangler trip to Paris. Did, did they do it in Paris? Yeah, the story was set in Paris. It and was Magneto's they, trial. And they wrote it and drew it in Paris. I don't know if they wrote it and drew it in Paris, but they got sent to Paris to do notes so that it was anatomically correct. Right. Or geographically correct, not anatomically. <laughs> Paris has a big Paris cock. is a, a being. Yes. Uh, page 12 has god-awful background colouring again. <laughs> Orange, red and pink, mm. for some reason. Um, page 16. Oh, yeah. Is that editor's note another example of Burn overthinking everything just to make the story make sense? Because of what... The yeah, there. no, that reeks to me as that's burn preempting that people will email in and say if North Star can move at super fast speed, how come Sasquatch was able to get hold of him? Yeah, and I think he's put that footnote in saying the reflexes are not proportionally faster. He's put that in to stop people saying can I have a no prize, <laughs> which people would do all the time back in the day. Fair enough. There's a colouring error. Want a no prize? <laughs> Uh, page 17. Is it not a bit hypocritical of Sasquatch to tell Northstar... No, to Judd, or Puck. Yeah. Tell him to not get involved in a private argument, when mm. the only reason they're all fighting is because Sasquatch got involved in said private argument. Uh, yes. But two things. The, the established here, Sasquatch is losing control. Yeah. So he's, he's... What's his name? Um... It has been bubbling over between North Star and Sasquatch for a while now, ever since Sasquatch started going out with Jean-Marie. But he yells at Puck, Judd. North Star's an arrogant get. From the get-go, North Star was an arrogant get. He was only in Alpha Flight because of his sister. He's actually quit the team at this point. Now that he's not talking to his sister anymore, he's bailed out the team. He's only answered the call in the hope of seeing his sister and making up with her. Okay. So North Story was always was a rather arrogant and unpleasant person to deal with, and wasn't interested in being an alpha flight. The guy's um, an Olympic skier. He uses his powers to make him the best skier. Okay. So he's an Olympic skier. So he doesn't want people knowing that he's got superpowers. Fair so enough. he's not really interested in being an alpha flight. You think he'd wear a mask though? Yeah. Is that like there's a drug test and there's a superhero test? Yeah, there must be superhero tests in uh, the Marvel universe. Although let's face it, it would be funny if we had, they actually showed us the, the if they actually let people in drug tests to actually do it. So they split them into two. You have the clean races and then the, the and then the drug races. Yeah, the drug see races. what's better. Yeah. What an excellent idea. Uh, page thirteen through twenty-one. Essentially, the team fighting amongst themselves. And there's a nice little recapping of subplots going on in the book at this time. Sasquatch has been becoming more bestial and losing control of his Sasquatch form. Walter and Jean-Paul never so eye-to-eye anyway. Uh, page 19, where North Star punches Sasquatch once on panel. 
but we're told in the caption it was a thousand punches a second gives some indication of the animosity between the two of them uh, dreadful coloured backgrounds again the light blue's not bad but then the yellow the red the pink and the orange sky mm. are once again quite irritating where, where do you live that has a pink sky unless there's a crisis <laughs> on infinite earth coming uh, page 21 excellent panel layout on page 21 of Sherman making the team disappear and then reappear with Guardian. Very similar to how artists would depict Doctor Doom's time machine. Yeah, where it make them disappear yeah. from the bottom up. Yeah, I, I really liked that, because the implication with that is it's spiralling downwards. Yeah. So it's a slightly different effect, but still very good. Uh, page 22, page 23 is a gorgeous double-page spread of Guardian fighting Omega Flight. One of the things Byrne did very well on his run on both FF and Alpha was the fight scenes, and I picked these two issues specifically to show the two different ones that he did FF250 was a glorious superhero brawl full of punchy punchy run run and property damage whereas here the fight is brutal and quick I would credit punchy punchy run run if I could remember who came up with it sorry somebody email in and tell me the Alphas are cocky and overconfident and too wrapped up in their own problems to operate as a team and Omega just wiped the floor with them to start off with the discovery that Snowbird is tied to Canada comes at the worst possible time when they've whisked them all the way to New York. Uh, Aurora has always been a character that can dole it out but not take it, so Wild Child hurts her easily. And Sasquatch is now so terrified of losing control, he's rather lacklustre. Only the fact that Sherman keeps his head and North Star is brutal when pushed saves the team. This is not the finest hour mm. as a battle. I did like the Sherman's bag thing, though. Sherman's empty bag where it makes you crazy but if you look into it it makes you insane yeah that was brilliant that. Uh, it's by page 28 yeah smart Alec looking in the bag and it literally driving him I thought I'm that chilling mm. when I was a kid to be honest with you because there was a TV show a cartoon called Sport Billy and he had a bag that was mag- an omni sack and he could reach into it and pull out anything he wanted okay. and this was kind of like that only worse um what do we think of the fact that Byrne uses the repeated panels thing here that again tons of artists would use and overuse well I didn't mind it because it was only this once yeah it's not quite as effective here though because you can tell it's been blown up can't you yeah Uh, yeah it's not like he overuses it to be fair he's not pulling um, a Gados (sighs) is it it Gados or is it Lark who does it too much Um, the guy did Invincible yeah, they do it. But they took the mick out of it as well, didn't they? Yeah. In Invincible. So that was quite fun. Well, it was Bendis as well. Yeah. In Invincible, they were taking the mick out of Bendis using repeated um, panels. And, uh, were they? Yeah. Yeah, fair Because enough. he's doing a signing, but he's not called Bendis. I don't remember. Which was funny. We need to cover Invincible, because mm. Invincible's really good. I think Invincible's better than Walking Dead. That, I think what, uh, Invincible's much worthy of a TV show than Walking Dead. Yeah. If not, because something Animated happens. Or live action. I'm not sure actually hmm. but it's probably only more worthy because something would happen every week yeah Invincible doesn't seem to go for the slow burn does it no Invincible just seems to turn it over on a regular basis mm. but we only read it as hardcovers to be fair we don't read it on a monthly basis which is probably better can you imagine reading Walking Dead on a monthly basis yeah that would, that would be quite awful it's as bad as Aquaman on a monthly basis yeah but you read them all together it works across. I mean this is why a lot of us are turning away from monthly issues which yeah. is quite sad especially when these two issues I've just picked show you how good monthly comics can be for 50p for 50p uh, page 33 the revelation that Box was Jerry Jackson <laughs> was well handled Box was another fascinating character um, Walt Roger Box 
was a paraplegic who created the exoskeleton suit to be able to move around in. A sadly underdeveloped character. So he's cyborg. Over Burns' remaining ta- tenure. No, he he's a paraplegic in a wheelchair. He's got no arms and no legs. And then he, he can position himself inside the middle of box. Okay. But it's not a cyborg, it's an exoskeleton, right. essentially. So he's Gundam winging it? Yeah, pretty much. Okay. So it allows him to move around and be a superhero. Right. And he was quite a decent character. Uh, the fight between Box and Guardian is brutal. Guardian takes a pounding and Burn shows this in his face, which is bruised and bleeding. Again, a nice contrast to the pure superheroic fight scene from the FF issue to the ramifications of really taking a beating from a superhero. He's not looking in good shape at the end of that, is he? Page 36. The panels are all numbers. Yeah, I like that. It's excellent, isn't it? Yeah. 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. As we count down to Guardian's suit blowing up, it's incredibly tense. Very well executed, Page. Guardian keeps his cool, really leading you to believe he's going to pull this off. And then Burn guts the reader and the characters. Not only is Heather responsible for her husband's death, but she has to watch him burn to death before her eyes. I... This was absolutely devastating. Yeah, especially when she would walk in there and not know what's going on. Yeah. And it's like, oh, there he is. Boom. What yeah. the? Um, like, like, you can have him, just don't turn around in the cave where he's gone. Yeah, it's such a gut punch. There is, to be truthful, if we're being honest, mm-hmm. quite a lot of padding in this issue. Yeah. And there's an awful lot of subplots get concentrated on in lieu of furthering the plot. But once the main body of the story gets going, this is quality stuff. Despite what Byrne thinks, his run on Alpha Flight may be my favourite of his works in the Marvel and DC trenches on an extended superhero title. One of the amazing things about the 28 issues Byrne worked on is there are precious few crossovers. And Byrne was left alone, essentially, to do what he wanted. The first issue sold over 500,000 copies. And the series seems fondly remembered by those of us that read it and loved it back in the day. And remember, no wizard or internet to spoil this for us. Yeah. We read this and went, despite the cover, you were still very... He's not really going to kill off a member of the team. Team. You told me he died before it. He's like, I'm choosing uh, Alpha Flight 12. Ah, which one's that one? Ah, the death of the Guardian. Sorry about that. (laughs) I do apologise. Um, Adverb Power Pack, which I loved, by Louise Simonson, June Brigman, and Bob Wyasic. Why they were on the boot, Power Pack was great. And then it went not so great. A bunch um, of four children with superpowers. Yeah, it was brilliant. Sounds... It was great as a kid. Um, Masters of the Universe video game. Woot. No, I, I probably only know um, Power Pack from uh, Marvel Zombies. Are they in Marvel Zombies? Uh, yeah. Mm. And. They're a big bad guy, and they're like, "Oh crap! I can't, I can't fight children, but the zombies, I can't do it." Okay, I've never read it. Uh, my final choice today uh, was easily a no-brainer. When I decided that Burn was going to be one of my three creators, this was the first book I picked that I wanted to cover. This book is amongst Burn's own favourites as far as his own work goes, and to me, is just a simple joy. It's my favourite of the Marvel DC crossovers after the Superman Spider-Man ones and those are more nostalgic favourites than anything else Batman and Captain America dropped in the US on December 11th 1996 it was square bound what was called bookshelf 
or Dark Knight style boot back in the day. Not Prestige. I don't think this was called a Prestige format, no. It may have been. I, I could be wrong. It's an Elseworld tale. Uh, Byrne did everything except the colouring, which was done by Patricia Mulvihill. Editing was done by Denny O'Neill and Mark Gruenwald. And before we begin, can we just say this is how you colour a comic? Yeah. January 1945. In Gotham City, Batman and Robin pursue the Joker through the streets in their respective mobiles. The dynamic duo believe they have cornered the clown Prince of Crime, but in true Joker fashion, the Harlequin of Hate eludes them at the last minute, thanks to a convenient ejector seat and a booby-trapped Joker mobile. Over in Europe, Captain America aids Sergeant Rock and Easy Company in the destruction of the latest Nazi threat, a huge tank-like walker that crushes all in its path. Using guile, ingenuity and his indestructible shield, Cap takes the walker down and then receives new orders. He and his partner Bucky are to report back to US soil. On the way back, Cap and Bucky happen across a hijacked transport plane. Cap leaps from his plane, but after a brief air battle, he's tossed from the transport to certain doom, only to be rescued by the Batman, pursuing self-same transport in the Batplane. Teaming up, Cap and Batman easily dispatch the criminals on board the transport and learn that there is a kidnapped victim aboard, Robert Oppenheimer, architect of the Gotham Project. Cap is concerned that Batman is even aware of the Gotham Project, but they interrogate the goons only to have them die, courtesy of the Joker. The Gotham Guardians take their leave and Cap is debriefed. This is the third time items needed for the Gotham Project have been grabbed by the Joker and the top brass believe he's been bankrolled by Bruce Wayne. Cap, in his guise as Private Steve Rogers, is ordered to become Wayne's bodyguard and find out the truth. Cap, reluctantly, takes the gig, but following Bruce is the most mind-numbingly tedious job of his career. Bruce, meanwhile, is becoming frustrated and tells Dick Grayson, aka Robert, that he must keep his appointment with the Joker. Rogers overhears only a portion of this conversation and doesn't so much leap as stroll gently in the direction of the wrong conclusion. He follows Bruce to the Wayne Foundation building where he finds Bruce taking his own documents out of his own safe in his own building. How very suspect. Nevertheless, Rogers attacks Bruce and the two have a short fight where both realise quickly the other's secret. The Joker, meanwhile, receives word from associates that even without Oppenheimer there is a prototype of the Gotham Project, an atom bomb codenamed Fatboy headed into town tonight and that the Joker is to snatch it. Unbeknownst to the Joker, however, his mysterious benefactor is the Red Skull. Batman and Cap regroup and deduce that although the Nazis abandoned their version of the Gotham Project, if they found a working prototype was being shipped to Gotham, they would try to snatch it. Batman continues his investigations, whilst Commissioner Gordon and Robin are informed that a short patrol ship was found adrift with all the men dead, with rictus grins on their face. Cap sees the location of the dead men and fears the worst. The target is Washington, D.C. Meanwhile, Batman and Bucky have tracked the Skrull to a warehouse in... The Skrull! <laughs> the Skull to a warehouse in Gotham, but are captured. The Red Skull captures them and blows up the warehouse, believing Bucky and the Batman to be dead. Cap, meanwhile, explains to Robin that Fatboy isn't being stolen, rather it's been shipped out to the same place the Allies were shipping it out from, as the army have taken great pains to ensure that that particular Air Force base appears on no maps. So ironically, it's the best place for the Joker to ship Fatboy from. The Joker arrives at the airfield and exchanges Fatboy, only to realise that his partner is the Red Skull. Horrified, the Joker may be a Class A psychopath, but he's an American Class A psychopath, he tries to poison the Skull with Joker Venom, as the Skull tries to save with his dust of death, but neither works on the other. The Skull then takes the Joker out with a monkey wrench. 
The school's plane takes off just as the back plane arrives. Batman and Cap board the school's plane and school opens the bomb bay doors to drop the bomb on Washington. The Joker surprisingly tackles the skull and both combatants and Fat Boy plummets to the floor. Cap, however, has managed to wrest control of the craft away from the skull's goons and directed the plane over the Atlantic Ocean. Fat Boy explodes over the ocean as Cap steers the plane for home. Epilogue 20 years later. Batman's son has now taken the mantle of Robin whilst Dick Grayson is Batman. Whilst in the Atlantic, they come across a man frozen in ice and awaken him. It is Captain America, thawed out to fight another day. Uh, it just says Joker Jr. has given us the slip this time, Bruce. I don't know what Joker Jr. was doing out in the Atlantic, but this is going to be a bit of a problem, this, because these prestige format books don't stay open. The Gotham Project and Fat Boy is an obvious allusion to the real-life Manhattan Project that developed the nuclear bomb, and Fat Boy, a nod to Fat Man and Little Boy, the two nuclear weapons detonated over Nagasaki and Hiroshima in 1945. The character of Robert Oppenheimer may even be J. Robert Oppenheimer, the father of the atomic bomb. Didn't we talk about him a bit last week? We were on about something. Yeah. Did we? Yeah. That was coincidental. Uh, the splash page is fantastic. A glorious shot of the bat signal over a hyper detailed Gotham City. The cloud cover and smog hanging over the tops of the many skyscrapers replete with gargoyles and water towers. I'm reminded of the Batman animated series now they didn't want any of the standard bat trappings until somebody pointed out just how damn cool the bat signal is. This isn't the first time Byrne has drawn a magnificent bat signal. There's an awesome one in Action Comics 594 but this is a gorgeous splash page. Look at the colouring in that. That's how you colour. The clouds. And the clouds and the sky turning from dark to dusk. Isn't just a solid pink. No, it's it's absolute all credit to Patricia Mullyville in this one. Every single background is gloriously detailed. Whether Byrne put extra effort into this because he knew it was a prestige format book or whether this is how he always drew when he didn't have a deadline, mm-hmm. I don't know. But it's just simply gorgeous to look at, isn't it? Um, as the Jokermobile streaks Jokermobile... <laughs> Streaks through Gotham. It passes two stores named after Shelley Moldoff and Dick Sprang. As with the Swamp Thing comic we covered a couple of weeks ago, there's a lot of nods here to past creators in the book. It's interesting to compare Byrne's work here over a 15-year period. This is so much more detailed than the work he did in Alpha Flight and the FF. There's a metric ton of backgrounds. The people all look real. And the colouring is just gorgeous, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I'm a fan of these Jokermobiles and awesome, Batmobiles. But why is Batman chasing the joke with the police? Is Batman not a vigilante? Uh, no, isn't he a duly deputised officer of the law at this point? Oh, okay then. I think. I love that the Joker has Joker cufflinks. Yeah. <laughs> Who does he, where does he buy them? They're not something you can buy off the shelf, are they, Joker cufflinks? They might depend on where you go. Yeah, oh, I thought it was really good. Uh, the shot of Batman and Robin in the top right hand side um, is gorgeous there's no page numbers in this I do apologise it's page three Robin's all excited and gung-ho Batman grim-faced and serious neither one of them's wearing a seatbelt <laughs> I noticed yeah. given how much Adam West would bang on about best to buckle up chum um, I felt that quite odd okay um, speaking of Adam West this isn't really a complaint but it's not hard to hear Adam West delivering this dialogue, is it? Well, I heard Adam West as Batman, but still, what's his face as Bruce Wayne? Kevin Conroy? Yeah. Alright, fair enough. Um, and Batman has bat brushes installed into his Batmobile. Yeah. He does plan ahead. 
Yeah, well, he does mention that they've been caught by this before. Mm. The Joker's oil slick. So he's obviously installed this in preparation. So I, I don't mind. It's not it's not as dumb as George Clooney having uh, bat high skates in his boots, is it? No. You're never letting that go. Either. I'm never letting that go, no. Never. Uh, nice VW golf-looking Batmobile as well, with the fin on the roof. Mm. I hope he doesn't go through any low building, low bridges. That would be quite bad. As usual with Byrne, this is appropriate for the period, as is Batman without the yellow oval. He has the Adam West eyebrows, though. Yeah. I don't know a lot of the nods in this to other creators is mostly in the artwork. Yeah. In the style of it. Yeah, it is very much in the style of 1945 Batman comics. But Captain America is very much in the style of John Byrne. You think I got a bit of a Kirby's vibe from this? I, I saw the Batman as being the old Batman art style... Yeah. Yeah, whereas Captain America is just a burn Captain America. Yeah, Captain America's not 40s Captain America, is he? No. But yeah, the Batman comics are very definitely Dick Sprang. Um, further, what I said, Pat- Patricia Mulverhill's colouring on the pages where the Joker escapes via ejector seat. Look at the sky! Yeah. Look at it! It's a proper sky! Sunrise and everything, it's not just yellow. Again, it's not really for... Is it? I mean, this is a prestige book. Yeah. So you have a much wider colour palette. It's also 15 years later, so printing has got better. So I'm, I, I think I'm not really been fur on the colours of uh, FF and Alpha Flight, though. It was a bit naff, though. It was a bit naff, though. But I'll give them benefit of the doubt. Uh, Batman and Robin escaping from the explosion. That's a fantastic panel. Where they dive into the, the ocean mm. to avoid it. Um... Did this page on the next page not make your brains explode? Captain America in World War II, which is fine, teaming up with Sergeant Rock, um, but the creme de la creme being the Nazi death machine. But did Captain America not meeting up with Sergeant Rock with no no mention of any any continuity (laughs) or parallel universe? It didn't make your brain explode? No, it didn't. No? No? I I, I was kind of hoping there'd be a Nick Fury... Yeah, Nick Fury as well. I I would have liked Nick Fury to have been with Sergeant Rock. Yeah. I think that would have been cool. Easy Company and the Howling Commandos were both here. Mm. Would have been brilliant. But alas, it was not to be. Throwing the losers as well. Yeah, throwing the losers as well would have been cool. Um, The Nazi Death Machine takes up a full page and has a feel of the Attack Walkers from the Empire Strikes Back and many of Hitler's Wunderwaffes. Wunderwaffe? I'm not pronouncing that correctly, am I? No. It's wonder weapons. Many of which never left the drawing board. Cap bringing the whole thing down with his shield is just wonderful. Simply because Cap's costume is so bright against the dirt and the grime of the art. I love the macho World War II dialogue here as well. Yeah. That was a smooth, Cap. Smoother piece of business as I've seen in this man's war. Come on, that's brilliant! Okay. So, Brad, I love that we surrender! We surrender! <laughs> this is a great couple of pages. I want somebody to do a Captain America World War II book and John Byrne to do it. Okay. Which he's not going to do anymore. I like that he, he says I got a chance to work with Easy Company before the show ended. Yeah. Because Cap's a bit miffed off that he's getting, um, what's his name? Recalled, though, isn't he? Mm. The, the, the tank looks pretty awesome. It's brilliant, isn't it? I think Burns at his best when he's drawing machinery. You think? Burn Robotics? Yeah. And even though this is just a giant wheel with a few blocks on it, it still looks pretty kick-ass. It, it does, and it's got ion cannons. <laughs> for but but if you step word. back and think about it, it's pretty silly. Yeah, but it's a comic, dude. Yeah. 
doesn't the Atat walkers are pretty silly if you sit back and look at them? How do those spindly legs support that frame? Why Vibranium. is everyone so terrified of them when they move so slowly? Yeah. But they're cool. Yeah. So sometimes coolness works. Uh, I love the face on Cap's pilot as we turn over the page as Cap and Bucky head towards um, America. I don't know why. I just love that pilot's face. I love his, his moustache. His hell chucks away, Ginger! His proper pilot moustache, which, which I thought was really good. Um, Cap jumps out of the plane, which is a really exciting Indiana Jones action beat. And him being rescued by Batman is brilliant. Um, was this not a bit reckless? A bit, yeah. I, c- I can kill myself from doing this, but it's up to you to take over, Bucky. See ya! And yeah. off he goes. It's a really good action scene, though, isn't it? Where he's hanging onto the back of the plane. Yeah. And the guy's shooting at him. I think it's really cool. And then Batman just swoops down and saves the day. That bat lad is not very taut, though, is it? Not really. Again, we have a Marvel DC crossover that doesn't bother with the hows and the whys these characters can meet. There's no bollocksing around with alternate dimensions and cat like that. Batman and Cap just haven't met before. Cap works with Sergeant Rock. No big deal. Okay. Um, Jings. I don't know why I wrote Jings. Yeah. That shot of the bat plane there is awesome. It's more of a warplane, bat plane rather than a streamlined jet. Yeah, but it's really good, isn't it? The camera, for want of a better term, is above the bat plane. And we can we can quite clearly see Robin in the cockpit and everything in the cockpit. Mm. And there's a detailed background, there's cloud clover, there's slipstream, there's Batman and Cap hanging from the rope ladder. Take that, Burn doesn't do backgrounds. People. Ah, oh, that's a glory. There's every single page of this is gorgeous. Yeah. I really do wouldn't mind a page of original art from this. Um, mine and Niggle. Any. Any page. I particularly like uh, this fight scene that follows as Batman and Captain America just punch the living daylights mm. out of all the people on the plane. Mine and Niggle. Once again, we see the cross-company trope of neither character being allowed to be perceived to be better than the other. Within seconds of meeting each other, Batman and Captain America are finishing each other's sentences and working as a team so well. By the time the fight begins over the next two pages, they don't even have to communicate. Special mention to the panel were standing back to back. Cap and Batman take out the Nazi goons, smiling. Yeah. Look. Smiling. Well, Captain America's smiling. Batman's just kind of smirking, isn't he? Yeah. Batman's got that Bruce Willis smirk going on. Like, I do this every day. How cool is this job? What I get to do when I go to work? I punch out Nazis. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, the whole not being as not being better than the other one got a bit annoying. Though. Well, who do you think would win between Batman and Captain America in a fight? Captain America. You think in Super a, Soldier Serum fight, would yeah. give him the edge? Yeah. All right, fair enough. Um, I love the next page as well when Cap teases Batman at the quality of his villains. Yeah. I hope this motley crew isn't typical of the kind of opposition you face here in Gotham. I might tend to doubt my find myself doubting your reputation. <laughs> and I love that Batman doesn't take him seriously either. Yeah. It's just like the war's been rough on everyone, Cap. Even even bad guys are recruiting lower quality Buy personnel. Bonds. Give me some better crooks. Yeah. That's <laughs> very, very funny. Uh, nod on the airfields to Joe Simon. Mm. Simon Err. Again, every single panel on this is absolutely gorgeous. Uh, I do like that Bucky and Robin don't seem to get on very well. Mm. And I like the subtle differences they make to Burn makes to the faces. Bucky has a much squarer jaw than Robin, and Robin has dark hair, whereas Bucky has brown hair. Yeah. I presume Bucky had black hair in the original comics. 
but the colour palette has obviously widened up. Although in the panel three, Bucky has black hair. Yeah. But I presume that's just a minor error in printing. I like that Capsolute's Batman. Yeah. Whereas you'd really be the other way around, shouldn't it? Maybe. Although Batman's not military, is he, so... No. It's just a nice touch. Uh, I do love that the next page is one of the few sticking points in the whole book. Cap points out to the top brass that the evidence they have against Bruce Wayne is extremely tenuous, but Cap has to follow orders. I thought that was pretty hilarious. Did you know what? The, the guys all suspect that Bruce we, we Wayne... We think it's him because he's, he's too clean. We, we, see, yeah, yeah. we think he's... Yeah, because that's essentially it, isn't it? He's yeah. not got any dirt on it. So he must... Therefore, he must be guilty of something. <laughs> and Captain Rush is like, dude, you're a bit being silly. <laughs> okay. <laughs> dude, really? That's all you've got? Yeah. Yeah, I do like that Cap challenges it. Yeah. He says, really? All right, fair enough. I do love that Bucky's bored mm. at this meeting, which I thought was quite funny. Um, I mean, yeah, it's a stretch, but they have to have Bruce meet up with Steve Rogers somehow, don't they? Yeah. Hyper-detailed panel of Wayne Manor, both inside and out on the next page. I do like, I don't know if this is intentional or not, Bruce and Dick are both wearing baggy clothes that make them look a bit fatter. Yeah. Do you think that's intentional? I've known it. No, me neither. Because Bruce obviously does some exercise. Yeah. Um, the montage of what a boring life Bruce Wayne leaves. I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, and Steve Rogers is just sat there, bored. Yeah. It's really funny. See, to Bruce, that's probably a pretty fun and exciting day. Yeah. Whereas to Steve Rogers, this is boring as hell. Uh, again, more gorgeous artwork. That panel there of Bruce lounging in the chair and Dick saying, come on, let's do something. Mm. And the fire and the bookshelves. And the colouring. And the colouring and the light from the fire. Yeah. Especially. It's it's wonderful stuff. Absolutely wonderful. The exterior shot of Steve Rogers sneaking around the grounds of Wayne Manor as it snows. It, you can't say enough nice things about the art. Whilst no one's ever doubted Burns' ability to draw heroes, I've always been impressed by how well he draws real stuff. His women when they're not super types like she look like real women his children look like children and the regular rooms in Wayne Manor here look like regular rooms we have a scene here where Cap overhears Bruce and Dick talking about the deal with the Joker and Batman has an appointment to keep with the Joker Yeah. and he misses the best part of the conversation where he would realise that this was Batman and Robin mm. but I thought that was quite funny Yeah. The, this carries over to the Wayne Foundation which is a gorgeous looking building. Um, Byrne has a big book of architecture and buildings that he uses when drawing, so I wouldn't be surprised to find out this was a real building somewhere. It's great. It's just absolutely wonderful stuff. Um, Steve Rogers can apparently perform the Vulcan neck pinch. On O'Hara. On Chief O'Hara, yes. I liked O'Hara, was in it? Yeah, he's not Chief O'Hara, to be fair. The guy in the, um, in the Wayne Manor, what are they called? The Concierge. Yeah. in Wayne Manor who just must be on guard overnight because I presume the building never actually shuts it's called O'Hara mm. which is a nice nod to Chief O'Hara because there isn't a police chief in this is the Commissioner Gordon's only in it briefly there are a lot of Adam West Batman yeah. things in it there, it does feel like an Adam West Batman episode yeah. um, the Bruce Wayne Steve Rogers fight scene is great again there's some lip service here to the cap maybe a little bit better at hand to hand combat because it's actually Bruce Wayne who says that, doesn't he? Yeah. He may actually be a bit better than me. Um, but it's Bruce that figures it all out. Mm-hmm. And then it's, come on, think about it, Steve. Detective skills. And then Steve goes, Oh, you're a Batman! Oh, stupid! <laughs> Just... um, the two panels 
<laughs> where they're fighting against Solid Black looks a bit off because of the changing of Bruce's clothes from black to blue. Yeah. Which sort of makes it look like his head doesn't belong in his body. Yes. I do wonder why you made that artistic choice. Because in every other respect... I mean, there aren't many backgrounds on these two pages. Maybe the colourist did it. Yeah. It's entirely possible the colourist did that. But yeah, Bruce doesn't change from being all in black to suddenly being all in blue because the backgrounds are black. And it, it doesn't really work very well. But I did like the panel of Bruce Wayne and Steve Rogers shaking hands and in the background it's Batman and Captain America. Yeah. And note to Jim Lee, you don't see Batman's ears through his cap. Just saying. I think I'm also the only one who likes that too. I think you're the only one who likes that, yeah. Yeah. Uh, the Joker's lure on the next page is just as detailed as Wayne Manor and the Foundation. But whereas they were glistening and polished, the Joker's den is squalid and grime encrusted. Burns' depictions of the Joker isn't silly either. He has normal proportions, not ridiculously skinny legs, and even the elongated chin isn't too silly in this. I love all these outsized props, mm. which is another nod to Dick Sprang. He's got oversized playing cards and an oversized jack-in-the-box. And his facial expressions. Yeah. But he's not happy. Again, I hear Mark Hamill here. A more whimsical Mark Hamill. Not necessarily the grittier Mark Hamill of Arkham Asylum. Yeah. But I still hear Mark Hamill's voice when I hear this Red Skull I now hear Hugo Weaving okay because I think he did a really good job in the film oh him yeah is he the guy in Matrix Mr. Lord of Anderson. the Rings yeah him guy in Lord of the Rings um, Mr. Rogers that's, yeah it still works we find out it's the Red Skull at the midpoint of the book where he kills a man just for talking I never understood bad guys doing this yeah. at some point you're going to run out of henchmen yeah. It's the Blofeld thing in the James Bond films. If he keeps killing the people that work for him, people are going to stop working for him. It's oh, that simple. They'd be too scared to stop working for him that they want to work for him. Well, if you say so. Um, next couple of pages. We get a, a full-page splash depiction of the Batcave. And not a eight-page... And not an eight-page depiction fold of the out. Batcave. Fold out. Yeah. What did you think of that? I liked it. Because we both like Jim Lee's Batcave. Yeah. Let's be honest. I think I prefer what's in the Batcave rather than the case himself. They're going, ah, the giant coin, ah, yeah. the Batmobile. The giant coins here, there's multiple Batmobiles. There's a Bat Submersible, yeah. which we will see in the epilogue. Yeah. So I quite like that. The Bat planes here. Um, there's only one Batmobile. No, there's a canoe. Yeah. So they can actually get out of the Batcave on the stream. The giant dinosaurs here. There's a thanks to Dick Sprang. It looks. It's very fifties. It's a very fifties idea of what the future would look like with all the computers. Mm. But it is fantastic. I'd like that page. Yeah, I'd have that page of original. So would everyone else. Have. Yeah, I would imagine that's an expensive one. Uh, the only appearance of Alfred. Yeah, and he's skinny Alfred, not chubby Alfred. No, do you know? I don't recall if Alfred was in the comics in the forties. Okay. I don't remember when Alfred showed up. Do you? No, I don't. I only know he was chubby from the zero issues. Yeah can't remember because he gets killed off in the 60s and yeah. then Aunt Harriet gets introduced and then he comes back and he's okay yeah he's alive everything's fine he just went off on a sabbatical yeah he just went off on a sabbatical yeah Commissioner Gordon unlike Alfred is a fatter version than the tall thin Jim Aparo version yeah then and Gordon just happens to have a massive wall length map of the northeast quadrant defences does he <laughs> He does. Yeah. It's Commissioner Gordon. Why would he not have one of them? Look over my right shoulder, it's a normal police officer. Look over my left, and it's a military base. 
Um, I do love the juxtaposition here of Batman working with Bucky yeah. and Captain America teaming up with Robin. I wonder how um, Batman would deal with Winter Soldier. <laughs> That's a crossover I would like to see. Don't just kill them, why not? <laughs> yeah, I'd brew back it to write it as well. Yeah. Batman and Winter Soldier. I'd be down God, with that. That'd be gritty and boring as well. I don't think it'd be boring. It'd certainly be gritty. He's running on Captain America, so it's get boring. Yes, but he's leaving. So For good. Fair enough. Yeah. Right. He's leaving Captain Is he not still doing Winter Soldier? Yes, he's still in Winter Soldier. Alright. Cool. Um, the the dead Ralph skulls are really creepy, especially the one in the show patrol shack, where it's a close up of his face. Then later on. Oh, in the next page. Yeah. That one. Oh yeah, the dust of death. Yeah. Do you find that creepier than Joker Venom? Yeah. Really? Yes. Okay. Because the Joker Venom makes him just look like the dead and smiling, whereas that makes it look like they burn the faces off and kind of. It does make it look like they burn the skin off. Which, yeah. Which is a bit icky. Um, I love the capage on the page where Jerry Robinson gets a shout out bottom panel where the Captain, Amer- Captain America where Batman and Bucky are attacked I love the cape though again it's very Adam West in the opening credits isn't it where he lifts it up to yeah. cover the bottom half of his face but um, oh, can't say enough nice things about this trap door just in the middle of the room yeah middle of the room trap door especially because Robin stands on it Robin I've done it again <laughs> Bucky stands on it I love I love all of this I don't think there is no bad in this um, a death trap the Red Skull has put Batman and Bucky in a death Batman I, can't possibly escape from this I don't see the point of death traps to be honest well especially not when you especially when you're just not going to stick around to see it happen you're going out of your way to create a device that will kill them you could just I don't know shoot them all they Stop. do they do <laughs> they do try and explain it in a couple of pages time yeah. but the, the explanation's a bit We'll yeah, let it whatever. go, but yeah, yeah. I do like that he calls him her Fly the Mouse. Yeah. Fly the Mouse, we have not been properly introduced. I am, I know you are, natty madman who calls himself the Red Skull. And I love that he clicks his heels together mm. when he's talking to Batman. It's brilliant. It's really good. Batman smiles! Yeah. In the face of the Red Skull, Batman smiles. Nods to Bill Finger and Charlie Paris as uh, the Red Skull blows up Batman and Bucky. The artwork gets more and more impressive and I fear we're just going to be as boring as we were with New Frontier. So I'll skip the excellent scene where the Joker betrays the skull because, well, he's a criminal lunatic, but he's an American criminal lunatic. That was pretty funny. It's hysterical. It's straight from the Rocketeer movie, that. Is it? Yeah. Um, It was awesome as well. Mm. Uh, I do like that the skull plans on using the Joker as a propaganda tool to be paraded around Berlin as an example of the freakish monsters America has bred, yeah? Which is awesome. The Red Skull does not talk like that. No. The Red Skull talks like Hugo Weaver. Um, okay. Aside from the excellence here of the back playing, we do have a little discrepancy. Burn, to his credit, has Batman explain both how he escaped from the death trap and why the Red Skull didn't just shoot him. Batman believed that the Skull's ego would not want so simple a death Rather, he would want to kill Batman in a manner befitting the Joker to prove that the skull was better than the Joker, which is fine. But the Batman goes on to explain that he knew from his first whip of the gas that it was not lethal and was able to get nose filters out of his utility belt and in his nose, also fine. But then he uses the old expanded his chest muscles routine to slip out of the ropes, also fine. But if we look at the art, his arms seem to be separately tied up from his chest, 
Being able to slip out of the ropes on his chest is great. How did he get out of the ropes around his wrists, feet and forearms? He what, dislocated his thumbs. Did he? Slid out of them. Really? Tied his feet. Uh, in, all, uh, in all that time before he blew the building up? Oh, yeah. Alright, fair enough. That stuff. He's Batman. Out of his utility belt. He's the goddamn Batman. Uh, I do love that bottom panel of that page where the bat plane just drops itself onto the Red Skull's plane. I like the profile shots above that. Yeah, and do, do you? Batman yeah. and Cap? No, the... Oh, planes. right. The plane getting into position above the Red Skull's plane. Yeah. Just before it drops down and magnetically It, it, do, it does look like something you'd see in a plane manual, though. It is a cross-section. Yeah. I don't care, it's cool. Mm. I love that bat plane, don't you? Yeah. It's an awesome bat plane. Um, love Batman's confidence in Robin as he and Captain America board the school's plane and then the bat plane flies off out of control and he just says Robin can handle it mm. <laughs> it's just okay let's endanger the 14 year old boy <laughs> but Cap's nowhere to talk is he because he does it with Bucky yeah so if, if anything Captain America's worse with Bucky yes you, you can't be in the army unless you're 18 and he's dragging a little 14 year old along. yeah hasn't Brubacher retconned that, that yes. he was 16 and he lied about his age yeah. so he wasn't quite as young I do love Captain America taking out the woman Nazi yeah. by hitting her with his shield <laughs> boing that's hysterical it would have been funnier if he'd punched her yeah sorry honey but you're still a Nazi thwack that would have been great um, the Red Skull says the fallout of Fat Boy will contaminate everything from 50 miles of ground zero. Batman and Cap managed to get out over the Atlantic before the explosion, but surely they were caught in the blast, hmm. weren't they? The geography seems pretty well thought out. If we assume Gotham to be in Chicago, the plane was heading to Washington, D.C., Cap guns the engines to take them out over the Atlantic. That's pretty much a straight line, isn't it? Yeah. Chicago to Washington to the Atlantic Ocean. I do wonder why Batman and Cap don't have cancer now. Yeah. I've been caught in that blast. And that bit there is very golden eye. But mm. I'll give it benefit of the doubt because this was before golden eye. Where they're both pulling back on the stick to get the plane to zoom up before it crashes. Very good. Red Skull and Joker and Fat Boy all fall out of the plane. Yeah. So they're dead. Well. Well. Maybe. Uh, Cap's reaction to the detonation of the atom bomb is great. The dawn of a new age, Bucky. A wondrous, terrible new age. Which I quite liked. Because hmm. Cap probably wouldn't be a fan of the atom bomb. Probably not. Um, I do like Batman's retort. At least we've seen the end of the Joker and the Red Skull, Cap. And Captain America's like, you don't really believe that, do you? And he's like, no, Captain, well, I the, don't. If they're back, they're cancerous zombies. <laughs> yeah, there is that, yeah. Um, the epilogue makes this fit in with Burns' Elseworld miniseries Generations even though we never see Captain America in that for obvious reasons. Mm. I've read that. Generations is good. Yeah. I like, I like Generations 1 and 2. I wasn't overly happy with I remember three. the bit with Batman fighting Rachel Ghoul. Yeah, in the Lazarus pit. Yeah. Um, this was a great issue. I adored this. I've mentioned before I don't really have an affinity for 50s and 60s Batman. And this is at the tail end of the 40s. So although the dialogue's a little bit Adam West, Batman is still a dark Avenger of the night, although he smiles a lot more than he does nowadays. They don't smile at all anymore, do they? Well, they grimace. With all stubble. 
Yeah, with stubble. Um, Caps handled true to type, with my favourite section being the World War II material with Sergeant Rock, but again, he's characterised solidly throughout. Robin and Bucky get a few nice scenes, but are largely sidelined. And Gordon and Alfred get a little more than a cameo, but there's a lot to love here for fans of old-school superheroics. Doubtless there isn't enough grim and gritty here for some people, although a story where a Nazi's aiming to drop an atom bomb on Washington, D.C. seems pretty damn dark to me. Mm. But that's what makes it. This is a romp more akin to Kelly's heroes than glory off saving Private Ryan. And it's such good fun, and the artwork's fantastic, and this is something you need to own if you're a fan of John Byrne, or if you just like good, clean, simple, fun comics. What did you think of it, Michael? I really enjoyed it. Did you? Yes. I'm quite happy you enjoyed that. I'm a fan of the more darker Batmans. Yeah, but it's... It's... Contagious in its fun level, isn't it? Because there's never any not good. That makes no sense (laughs) grammatically, I don't care. There's never any not good in punching out Nazis in Captain America punching out Nazis yeah in World War 2 and Batman joining in the fun it's just great. and the artwork's gorgeous and I I agree with Byrne that's her career best mm. in my humble opinion that's it for this week yep I hope you enjoyed it next week it's Michael yeah Michael's on Michael picks one of his favourite creators and we talk about that for about an hour or something yeah thereabouts uh, more emails if any of you email in obviously we can only do an email section if you email in go and check out unless the old episodes unless we start emailing ourselves Stanley again hurt you so great you yeah. Yeah. yeah no I'd email on saying shut up yeah. just <laughs> shut up uh, alright so that's it for this week let us know what you thought of that if you are a Burn fan like I am let me know what your favourite Burn issues are because I would like to know Maybe we'll cover them on a future show. Uh, We'll see you next week. Thank you very much. We hope you enjoyed it. Bye-bye. Goodbye. expressed in the show by Michael and Andrew are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and probably not to be taken too seriously. Old episodes of the show can now be found on the Two True Freaks internet radio network at www.twotruefreaks.libson.com That's T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S dot Libson, L-I-B-S-Y-N dot com. So if you're one of those people who'd be wanting to know where all our old shows are, that's where you'll find them. All music and sound clips used in the show are copyright the respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Michael and Andrew make no money from this, much to their chagrin. New episodes drop every Thursday, currently at aplayland.podomatic.com, but you can also listen through our Facebook page, which you can friend us on by using Hey Kids as the first name and Comics as the surname. You can also listen on our website, where you can also view the covers of the comics that we've covered this week. That's www.heykidscomics.webspace.virginmedia.com. 
If you have an opinion on our opinions, you can email us on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We also have a forum, www.forumforgeeks, all one word, .com, where you can drop by and say hello if you're allergic to email. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics. Thank you.